Meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice, our mild-mannered podcasters were bombarded by gamma rays, bitten by radioactive bugs, mutated by toxic waste, irradiated with cosmic rays, born into a world that doesn't understand them. And welcome to another episode of the Talking Comics Podcast. It's Wednesday, July 15th, 2020, and you're listening to episode number 451. I am your host, Steve Say, and joining me for this week's show is Mr. Bob Ryer. Happy birthday to our recent guest, Kelly Sue DeConnick. Yeah! Aaron Abos is also here. Hello, hello. And back from the shadows and depths <laughs> is Miss... Melissa, Megan. Hello. Hello. Hello, my lovelies. Yes, Melissa. I've missed you all. We've <laughs> missed you. <laughs> Melissa has joined us because, well, partially because we love having her around, but we've got a very special episode planned for you this week, folks. In addition to our lightning rounds and a mini movie review for The Old Guard, we've also got Sean Lewis and Caitlin Yarsky joining us later in the show to talk about their upcoming comic book series for Image Comics, Bliss. Uh, spoilers, we've already recorded the interview, and it was awesome, so you are not going to want to miss it. Other than that, uh, we're all still holding down our respective forts as the pandemic continues to do its thing. Uh, I know we haven't been talking about it all too much in the last few weeks. Uh, if you go out in public, please wear a mask. And be considerate to those around you who are rightfully paranoid about getting themselves or their loved ones sick. We're all in this together, and unfortunately, it's going to be a while before we return to some kind of new normal. Other than that, uh, Joey is still on vacation and will be until later this month. We're hoping that Sarah can come back to the show sometime soon. And uh, I might be taking a break of my own once Joey makes his return. I've got some mental vacation time banked, if you will, and uh, I'm thinking about cashing in on it for a few episodes. We shall see how I feel uh, when he comes back. But if I disappear for a bit, don't worry. Uh, I will be back. Fortunately. It's, not a, it's, it's not a feud or something between you and Joey, is it? No. He's not here, you're here, and then he'll be <laughs> back and you're gone. What is this about? No, I, uh, I, would, uh, I would tell you what he's up to, but I don't think that Joey likes his personal stuff to be shared on the show. I don't think they, they've true. added it to their contract. They just didn't tell you guys yet that they refuse to be on the same show together uh, anymore. It's, like all, it's all about him not coming to my Animal Crossing island yet. Okay. <laughs> Every time I see him pop on J. Coolio Rex, and I'm like, there he is! And then nothing. <laughs> He hasn't visited mine either, Steve, so... That's okay. He's doing his own thing, and that's perfectly all right. It's not that one of you is Joan Crawford and the other is Betty Davis or anything, but we just want to clear that all up. No, 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 no. Which would you be, Steve? Yeah. (laughs) Would you be Joan or Betty? Uh, I don't know that I'm allowed to... like Divulge. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Who do you think I would be? 
I feel like Joey's definitely Joan. a Joan Crawford. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, Joey's Joey's the Joan. You're the Betty. Yeah. <laughs> I really wish I knew who these people were. I'm gonna have to. Oh, right. It's like who's the Mary? Who's the Rhoda? Is that what? Yes. <laughs> that it's what I have no idea what's going on anymore, folks. <laughs> so anyway, uh, like I said, we got lightning rounds. We got tons of books to talk about. We got the movie. Uh, I'm going to talk to you about a little television show that I started watching on Netflix. Uh, that was tons of fun in its first episode. More on that later. Uh, but for now, we're going to do some lightning rounds. And I'm going to have Bob go first this week. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Um, you have five minutes on the clock, sir, and go. I caught up digitally with star number five by Kelly Thompson, Javier Pina, Felipe Andre, Jesus Arbatov, and Clayton Cowles. And I found the finale to this mini very satisfying, particularly in that Ms. Thompson eschewed typical, uh, the typical outcome. I don't want to say much more as once this book went digital, many of you might have opted to trade weight. Here's the thing, though. I'll be buying this issue three times, digital, in the trade I've already pre-ordered, and as a single issue, as Marvel has just announced that Stars number four and five, plus Valkyrie number ten, and a whole number of other missing things will be in print over the next few months. Arg. Oh, dirty pool. Dirty pool Marvel. Anyway, Fantastic Four, Empire number zero by Dan Slott, R.B. Silva. Sean Isaacs, Matea Garcia, Marcio Menez, and Joe Carmagna was an absolutely delightful family adventure issue. One that, although touching on the new event, was wonderful, whole, wonderfully whole and complete on its own. With the next three issues of this and many other titles consumed by the crossover, this could be the last Marvel book I'll be talking about for a while. Sorry, guys. At least until autumn. Uh, Adventure Man number two, Matt Fraction and Terry and Rachel Dodson with Clayton Cowles on letters was, just like number one, absolutely right in my wheelhouse. Uh, The mysterious book containing a lost Adventure Inc. story that the ghost lady dropped off at Claire Connell's shop has has piqued her interest, and that leads her to the address on its frontspiece, 303 3rd Avenue. It's a dump, says a passerby. But Claire sees an Art Deco skyscraper, and then she's pulled inside. Mr. Fraction's loving character setup of the first issue paid big dividends for me here, as Claire fairly leaps off the page, ably abetted by what could be the best work of the Dodson team's career. Whoa. Wonder Woman. Yeah, I drop the bomb every once in a while. Wonder Woman 358, Steve Orlando, Emanuela Lupacino, Ray McCarthy, Romulo Fajardo Jr., and Pat Rousseau was a gripping tale of redemption as Diana confronts the phantom stranger for the soul of Paula von Gunther. Stirring words by Mr. Orlando and Mr. Buccino's art is the best scene in this series since the Greg Rucker rebirth team of Nicholas Scott and Liam Sharp. Finally, Lois Lane number 12 was the finale of this engaging miniseries by Greg Rucker, Mike Perkins, Andy Troy, and Simon Boland. And for me, it wrapped up all the various plot threads from this four-pronged story, mm-hmm. journalistic, romantic, actioner, and meta, while still creating some new strings for future creative teams to tug on later. So I've said a lot about this series. I think this will make a fabulous read in trade or in binge, and I think Steve has done just that recently. I have done just that recently. Yeah. Uh, I am, I'm done, so go for it. Go for it. Yeah, so much of my reading 
for this week was me reading Lois Lane uh, 1 through 12, just gunning the whole thing in one shot. And I thought it was outstanding. I, I have not, uh, in making my list for the year of everything that I've read for when we do our awards, I have noticed that I've not bolded many things. Uh, part of that is is obviously due to the pandemic and the, the mess of scheduling and stuff like that. But Lois Lane was definitely one of the standouts that I've read this year. It is really a testament to how good Greg Rucka is and how well he understands these characters, how well he understands female characters in particular. I always enjoy his take on that sort of thing and watching Lois do what she does and using the power of the proverbial pen with, you know, her, I don't want to call them sidekicks, her partners in, in this mystery. Mm. And there's, I'm not going to spoil anything, not, there's a point in this book, it's like the last page on one of the later issues where basically you have all of your characters assembled. They're, they're, you don't know who everyone is in the story for quite some time, and then once all is revealed and and it's time to, yeah, yeah. to take on the big bad, so to speak, there is a final page that is just everyone together, and it was one of those fist-pumping moments for me where I looked at the bottom of that page and I was just like, yes, let's do this. Like, let's, let's wrap this sucker up. And in addition to all of that stuff, you know... We, we've gone back and forth with this whole thing, and I don't know, DC has come forward in that they don't like to have couples, or they don't have to, like to have their, their characters married or whatnot. Some of the Lois and Superman stuff uh, yeah. in this series were, in a, aside from everything else being pretty incredible, I really enjoyed watching their relationship play out throughout the story, and, and Superman having to sit on the bench for... for a vast majority of it because Lois is in charge of her own fate and she can handle herself and she doesn't always need Superman to come by. And when he steps out of line and she puts him right back in his place and there are some very deep conversations between them that like really connected me to them as a couple. And I just found that stuff fascinating and really well executed and, and overall I mean, I had some, there are issues with the art from time to time for me personally, but I do like the grittier, darker, more like shadow drenched nature of it. I think it lends well to kind of this um, sleuthy mystery thing mm -hmm. that has a lot of different angles to it. Like once you think you've got a grip on what this book is about, Rucka and his team introduce this, that, and the other thing to you later that just make it so much bigger than it already was. And and really, really masterful stuff. I, I enjoyed the heck out of it from beginning to end. It was a very... I, I read it over the course of, like, two or three nights, and it was super, super satisfying. One of the best things that I've read this year, for wow. sure. Yeah, outstanding. Glad to hear that. I yeah. didn't want to steer you wrong. No, I, I, you know, I had checked out at least the first three issues when it was uh, first coming out, and then I kind of got derailed and decided just to wait until the end. And I'm glad that I did, because I, I think this is the kind of story with, with, with there being so many different um, spiders in the web, so to speak, between the, the political stuff, the journalistic stuff, uh, the question stuff that was also being introduced where I had, like, little to no background about who that character was. 
uh, I thought that they did a great job framing that stuff so that I was able not only to follow it, but to also feel for this character that I'm just being introduced to and this kind of old relationship that they have with another with another person in this story. Yeah. And uh, I was really able to feel that and appreciate that. And those those beats in the story were, were very satisfying. Now, you mentioned Lois and, and Supermare, Lois and Clark, as a couple. Mm-hmm. Greg Rucker writes them as, as an old married couple, in a way. Yes. They have, they have shorthand and body language and looks at each other, and it's just masterful. He is, as you say, he is one of the, one of the best in the business, and it's a book like this that, that can really show it off. Yeah, I, I agree 110%. I, I absolutely loved it from beginning to end. Uh, I highly recommend it to anyone who uh, likes to dabble in the DC verse, or even if you don't, go and check it yeah. out. Everyone knows Lois a... Lane. Go ahead, Melissa. I was going to say there's going to be a lot of Greg Ruck on the show. Yeah. Never a bad thing. Ruck around, Never Ruck a bad thing. <laughs> Aaron, I think you had read Fantastic Four Empire. Yeah, I was just about to jump in on that. I was just so much looking forward to the Fantastic Four returning because, again, like we've said a couple of times, being in the middle of this pandemic, we're looking to our comics to entertain us. And I'm always, you know, pretty sure that the Fantastic Four is going to entertain me. And I wasn't disappointed. I will say that as I was reading through the beginning of the story and they were sort of getting engaged in everything, I, I thought to myself a couple of times, this is an adventure that doesn't need to happen because they're putting themselves in this space. But then I just sort of step back and realize this is what they do, though. They sort of create these scenarios, whether it be because of their personalities or whatever, and then end up finding out that they were absolutely necessary to be there and sort of save the day and sort of solve the problem and and sort of open up the mystery for, you know, deeper, you know, inspection. So I I really just, again, I've always just loved that relationship between the, you know, the different family members. And I'm still wondering what they're going to do with Franklin. Um, I recognize the, so, the whole sort of muzzle they have on him with his powers and everything and what mm-hmm. that's going to mean moving forward. Um, I kind of wish they would sort of loosen the reins on that a little bit, but I understand it for the story and I have a feeling it's going to pay off some point later. But, you know, I, I'm i never disappointed with Fantastic Four. Yeah. Uh, we have X. Men Fantastic Four number four due in a couple of weeks, I think it is. And that might start to move some of Franklin's situation forward. If you remember that one, Dr. Doom had gotten himself involved in, in all that. So I hope, I hope for that. It was great to see the kids being so forward in the story on this one. Yeah. Always, always a lot of fun. And it is, it is a romp. It's a heist. It's a caper and it's space. And Mm -hmm. somehow it's the Kree and the scroll too. Sounds like five dollars. I'm going to have to spend is what it sounds like to me. Yes, Sue, Sue, Sue is everything. I'm sorry, but Sue oh. is just she just. I wrote, even after reading The Invisible Woman, her little her her mini, I I grew to love her even more. I already loved her, but that just sort of cemented it for me. But she is just everything in the way she she handles those kids, and it's just. I mean, when you have as they say an omega level genius and a basically a miniature god, you know, as kids, I'm sure you probably suffer through a few other. A few more yeah. entanglements than most parents, you know, suffer through, but she, she doesn't miss a beat. I, I really, I love that. Um, but I have to say, when I got to the final page and you click to the next and you see, um, everything that's happening with the event, my exact response was, nope. Yeah. Nope. Not doing yeah. it. When you saw that's that it. full page of books that are tying, nope, I'm out. 
two-page spread of books. Of course, the, they are listed as being in April, May, and yeah. June. <laughs> I just it just sort of shut me down, and my, my immediate thought was, I will read what I had always read, unless it is completely overtaken by the, you know, by the event. Yeah. But there's no way you're going to get me. And I, I understand that I want to support my stories, but I just I just can't. This is like touching on the – we had the question when I first started the show was uh, what my pet peeve is, and I think I said it was events. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just I – will, I will support where it brings me joy to support, yeah. but I will not fall into the gratuitous sort of I mean, baiting. If, if they collect this like they have been with the the new X stuff, because that Jonathan Hickman stuff has been coming out real – like at a, a fast clip so mm-hmm. that people could get caught up. It would be nice if there was some kind of turnaround like that for this, because, you know, sometimes even if we're we're exhausted by events or don't want to pay five dollars for every issue, especially if it's a book that we're not already reading, uh, just to be able to get the whole story. It's nice when those trades come out and you can pick up, you know, X amount of issues for seventeen ninety nine yeah. or, or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, especially during a time, I mean, nobody, nobody planned for this. And so, you know, I'm not pointing the finger anywhere, but with this pandemic on, money is more precious Mm -hmm. than it was even before all of this crap started. And the idea of boarding a Marvel event, any event really, uh, knowing what the cost of entry is to this sort of thing, I just... Like I didn't even I didn't I kind of want to pick up Fantastic Four because you're both talking my language, especially when you mentioned the kids being more involved because I've really missed them. Uh, I I have talked about it before, but kind of feeling like they've been sidelined a little bit for some of Slot's run. But um, I just I don't know where you go from there. Spend this five dollars and don't worry about the rest of it. That's what Aaron and I are going to do. That's exactly what I'm going to do. I, I, I give them a little bit more leeway because I really love uh, War of the Realms. But again, I I've been impacted too many times by this overwhelming, you know, requirement to to go all in and essentially hand over the you know your bank account numbers for all the books that you have to you know purchase. So I'm just going to be very specific and sort of have a laser focus on what books I want to read and, you know, do some more research, but I would recommend this one, Steve. Yeah. Take right. it as a one, take it just as a great one shot. You're good to go. That's hey, I, go ahead, yeah. Bob. Uh, you'll, you'll have a great time. You'll laugh. You'll smile. You'll be thrilled. You'll, you'll love it. I think you'll relate to the two new characters in the book as well. Absolutely. All right. All right. I was going to say it's all well and good until Joey comes back and, says that he's been reading every Empire, Empire. book, and I get totally sucked in. Well, the thing of it is, my conversations with store owners before the world went goofy, mm-hmm. people were not jumping on board this event particularly well. There was very much wait and see. Now it's very much wait and see as, as the books trickles, trickle out every other week. So it'll be, be interesting to see what the numbers show. I'm sure the first issue will be big, and then we'll go from there. Because that was pre-ordered way before, but I think everyone has a little bit of fatigue for the whole world, let alone event fatigue. And you add those two together, who knows? Yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah, I have one other thing. One other thing to throw in. Sure. In Adventure Man, this Art Deco skyscraper is at three hundred three Third Avenue. That is a real address in New York City. It's on the corner of Twenty Third Street, and the the building in the book 
the actual building that, that the Dodsons draw looks very close to the actual one, which is a bank and a restaurant. And it's the law office. 303 Third Avenue are the law offices of Lisa A. Solomon. It's a real place. Oh, my. So but you got to go look that up. But there's some there's some fun. Ho- hopefully, Miss Solomon gets some business out of this. <laughs> Speaking of iconic buildings, I often uh, go back to the Flatiron Building, which is where Bob and I met up with Melissa for the very first time in the city. Which is the same neighborhood as this. What? It's, Mad- it's, Mad- it's Madison Square <laughs> Park. It's right on that corner, the Flatiron Building. Oh. It was fated to be. That was a very yeah. special day. I had a I had a blast that day. Yeah. We went to that that what's the name of that chocolate place, Melissa, that we went to and had such a great time? Oh gosh, I can't remember. Max it's is it Max? Uh, no. Max Brenner. Yes. Yeah, it's Max Brenner. Oh right. Yes. It's a, it's a tourist trap, but it's fun. I don't know how you remember that we met up at the Flatiron building. <laughs> yeah. I I even remember what I ate at Max Brenner's that day. I got their like short stack of pancakes with that uh like creamy vanilla uh drizzle that they had. Yeah. I remember had... a lot of things about that day. I, uh... And they give they give you biscuits with little containers of chocolate sauce to dip it in. Yes, yes we did. Yes. That was I think why we went there. You had mentioned those. That was like what you had your heart set on. Mm-hmm. Ooh, biscuits. I yeah, I I don't know how you remember that. I do remember the first time that I met Bob in person. My cat is walking on my keyboard. I hope he doesn't mess something up. (laughs) The first time I met Bob in person, I literally smashed into him while he was carrying coffee for Kelly Sudeconic. That's right. Oh, (laughs) we like we like ran into each other. I think coming off a staircase at Comic Con. This is this is true. I was like, "Oh, hey, you're Bob." (laughs) I'll be right back. (laughs) So the two of you had already met when we went to the Flatiron then. Was it my first time meeting you that day? I don't know. I don't know. All right, we're 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 going we're, off. We're, on, we're, uh, we're rambling. They yes. were running around behind your back, taking a trip down nostalgia lane. Now, yes. Now I want. Now I want gnocchi, Melissa. You know. <laughs> uh, what I want. I want Melissa to do a lightning round. Is what I want. <laughs> I like how I remind everybody of food that they've eaten. <laughs> All right, Melissa. Um, I'm going to put five minutes on the clock for you. Okay. All right. Um. Yep. Okay, are you ready? <laughs> I'm ready. All right, go. All right, so I'm not going to give you guys all comic books today. I'm just going to say that right up front, because uh, when I took a break from talking comics, I also took a break from comics for a little bit to get reacquainted with uh, my other love, which is gaming. So I've been doing a lot of gaming in the past year. Um, I am going to talk about a, uh, let's see, I read Middle West, Volume 1, which is a book by um, with art by Scotty Young and... George Corona uh, and Mike Huddleston. And this was a book that I read the number one issue of it when it first came out and talked about it on the show. And then I sort of forgot about it. And then I decided that I wanted to support my local comic book shop when uh, Corona started up. And so I went through and saw this on the list and I said, you know what, I'm going to read this again because it was so fun. Um, So this is a really uh, intense uh, and fantastical story about a young boy named Abel who um, has a a blow up with his dad, um, and they and and yeah they have they have some family problems and Abel um, sets out on a an adventure with his little fox friend, um, and 
I don't want to say much more because I don't want to spoil it, but uh, it is full of beautiful, gorgeous artwork, as you would expect from Scotty Young. I always think it's fun to see Scotty Young do stuff that's more like mature, you know, Um, because I think he's kind of known for like his uh, child friendly, kid friendly artwork sometimes. Um, So it's fun to see him do things that are more intense and and sometimes creepy and, you know, rough around the edges. Um, It's a really colorful book. It's really fun to read. Um, and the story is is really heavy, and um, there's a lot of metaphor going on in here. There's a lot of, like, uh, who am I thinking of? It reminds me a little bit of, um, oh, God, I shouldn't have said this because I'm not going to remember his name. But there's a director who does beautiful um, films that are all really fantastical like this, and everything sort of, every person that is encountered sort of stands for something else. Um Oh, it's going to drive me nuts until I come up with it. It's going to drive me nuts now, too. I'm I know. And I know as soon is. as I say it, everybody's going to know who I'm talking about, but I'm not is going to Is it the Hellboy it. guy? That's a... No, 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 no. Um, no, more fantasy realm than that. But anyway, Middle West is amazing, and I was only disappointed when I got to the end of it and realized that um, there have been more volumes of this since Oops. the last time that I... Yeah, the last time that I checked it out, and now there's um there's another volume. Volume two is out, and I believe Steve, you said volume three is coming, right? Um, uh, I mean, Middle West has been going on for quite a while. I would not be surprised if there's either a third arc available, or if they're just wrapping it up now. I can look that up for you while you're uh, doing your thing. Yeah, I think that there. I think I had because I already I already ordered issue number two. I looked it up and ordered it, um, but I think there's an issue number three coming. Um, and I like to read things in trade, so I always look for big volumes. Um, but yeah, Middle West is amazing. Um, I did not intend, you guys will hear the interview with Sean and Caitlin. I did not, it was not my intention to read two heavy emotional books about fathers (laughs) at the same time, but somehow I did. Um, and yeah, so they're both like heavy family stories. Um, the second thing I wanted to talk about is just a mention for something that's going to be coming out on the day that this podcast is is live, um, and that is the Sandman audiobook, which I am super excited about. Um, and I know a lot of people probably saw um, Neil Gaiman was sharing information about the cast. He finally revealed a bunch of the cast who are going to be involved in this just a few days ago. But there's some really good talent on this. Um for example, Taryn Egerton um, is going to be playing John Constantine. Uh, James McAvoy really? is going to, yeah, James McAvoy is going to be Morpheus. Um, Kat Dennings is in this. She's going to be Death. Is a big favorite character. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, Riz Ahmed is playing uh, Corinthian. There's like there's a star lineup of voices on this, and I can't wait. Oh, Andy Serkis is doing Matthew the Raven. Um, <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of amazing people that he lined up for this, and I'm super excited about it. I don't have a lot of time to read novels anymore, but I love audiobooks because it makes doing chores a lot more fun. <laughs> um, and I think this is going to be incredible, and I haven't read Sandman in a few years, so this will be a nice revisit of a of a big favorite of mine. Um, and for those of you who never read it, maybe this is a, a way to you know get yourself into it. It's something that you've always wanted to check out. Um, the last thing I want to talk about is a little video game that I played earlier this year. It's called Lost Ember, and I think that um, video games that are relaxing and soothing aren't talked about enough. Um, a lot of video games are full of like crazy excitement and shooting and chasing and tension, um, 
I find video games for myself are can be a really nice way to unplug and relax if you play the right game. Uh, Lost Ember is a really beautiful, artistically, looks like it's hand-drawn kind of style um, game where you get to go inside the body of multiple animals and travel through um, this kind of currently uninhibited world, and you see kind of flashbacks that tell you the story of... Um, of a society that once existed um, and kind of fell apart. And um, you get to see this story through the eyes of all of the creatures that are left behind. Um, oh. It's stunning. It's beautiful. It's stunning. You get to fly. You get to run. You get to crawl through tunnels. Like, you get to swim as a fish. Um, it's just a beautiful, stunning game. And I found it really, really soothing and comforting um, in stressful times to just jump in there and get lost. Um and run around in a beautiful world. So I just wanted to share that with you guys too. Awesome. Yeah. I, uh, for, I guess I forgot the title of the game. I absolutely wanted to play this when I saw the trailer for it back in the day. I didn't even realize that it had come out. It was November of last year. Yeah. It came out the end of last year. Jesus. Um, yeah, you should play it. It's a, it's a, it's on steam. I think that's where I played it. Um, probably a few other places too but that's where i grabbed it. it's a little indie game it's never very expensive um but it's absolutely beautiful and it's a great game to just get lost in if you just need to like shut off and see some gorgeous stuff in your eyeballs you know <laughs> and yeah. let your mind rest for sure so in uh with regard to middle west the third trade is on the way it's scheduled and they are uh waiting for the 18th issue to drop so there are currently 17 issues with 18 okay. on the way awesome and that looks to be the either the start of a new arc or the second book in a new arc uh judging by the pricing structure for uh for what middle west is right now yeah i'm sorry i didn't get that straight i always think of terms no, okay. of trade paperbacks and not single issues you don't have to have all the answers. <laughs> it's all good. Was, we can, we that, can look it up. Yeah, that was lovely, Melissa. It's like you never left. Oh, thanks. Roll. And that Sandman audiobook. Woo! Yeah, look, cast. That sounds tasty. And that is out today that we're dropping this podcast on the 15th. So that's exciting. That might be the one way that I get into Sandman because I tell you, it's not because I don't, the subject matter, it's just when you mention it to people, they start going back into the history and I'm like, oh my God, it's too much. It's, it's, I have the same affliction as a, when I open up Netflix. So this is actually exciting. I thought of the director. It's Terry Gilliam. That's what ah. I think of. Ah, some of my favorite movies are from him. Yeah. The style of that book reminds me of Terry Gilliam. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Uh, did he do The Fisher King? Yes. Okay, so Fisher King is another one. Time Bandits is one of our favorites. Brazil. I, oh, I forgot about Time Bandits. I missed the book <laughs> on Time Bandits. I've seen it, but I, I, I didn't grow up with it. That was fun. Um, man, what happened to Terry Gilliam? <laughs> <laughs> He's been trying to make Don Quixote for the last... Oh, he made it. He made it. Yeah. It came out, and, uh, you know, I don't know, man. Some of the... Some of these filmmakers, oh boy, that's a whole other kettle of fish that we're not going to go into. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was awesome, Melissa. Thank you so much. And thank you for, Thanks. I'm now going to go back and I'm going to read Middle West because I want to get caught up. Aaron. Yeah, who? Huh? Oh. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, I'm going to put five minutes on the clock for you, my friend. You see how I waited this time? I did. I did. Okay, okay you, have, <laughs> you have five minutes on the clock and go. Okay, so I didn't do a lot, a lot of reading this week, but I did jump into the book that I've been really excited about catching up on, and this Rona got us all stuck, so we had to wait a long time. Uh, and that was Strange Academy number two. Um, Strange Academy one came out uh, by Scott Young and Humberto Ramos and Edgar Delgado and VCs Clayton Cowles, and I think we were all right on top of it when it came out. Um, I was just very excited about the the topic and the subject matter and the the, the inclusion of all the characters that were there and what that could mean. Um, and, you know, I'll be honest, I have always loved a, a Harry Potter vibe, you know, in spite of some unfortunate comments being made these days, but we'll move on. So I was just very excited for it when I saw the issue two was coming up. And one of the things that I, I, I was hoping would happen with this issue was that it would give us a little bit more insight into some of the characters into some of the students. I think we know at a high level, at least I did at a high level, who some of them were and how they were related to the uh, larger Marvel universe. But I got to be honest, I, I didn't have a lot of backstory on them. And I think this, this issue delivered on that. It, it broke down their first day uh, at the Academy and gave you sort of a play by play of what, what they're experiencing and how they're sort of uh, dealing with it. And it seems like some are a little bit more comfortable in that space than others. Um, it gives you some insight into some of the friendships and where they exist right now. But as you're sort of watching you can or reading through, you can sort of see that, you know, some of those friendships are tense right now, but there's seeds of there being really, really great bonds and connections uh, coming later. That seems, that seems to be the, the sort of practice that we see that, you know, enemies become the best of friends in the end. Um, I think this book just really, really creates a fun space. And it's interesting because it was what you said earlier about Scotty Young, Melissa being um, you know, associated with his younger characters. And I, and I think this is sort of a combination of the two. He's being associated with his younger characters, but there is a bit of a a more adult theme uh, that's going to be woven into this. Uh, and I say that because even though you're getting a day in the life of, of these new students and sort of building out the world of this school, uh, there's a couple of uh, points in the book where there's some questions asked. As you remember in the first issue, uh, there was a character who asked, you know, was told about the the cost. And I think we've talked about this with, with Wanda a couple times, you know, in the past about what the cost of magic is. Um, and there was some allusions to, well, we've taken care of that for you here. You, you can use your, your your magic, you know, as you please, as it's, you know, as long as you're inside the school. But there's really not a whole lot of detail that goes into that. We see later, you know, when the teachers are all uh, meeting up and discussing it, um, that there's something being hidden there. There's something there is there's some cost that someone somewhere is playing, uh, paying rather that, you know, is going to have a, a role to play in the future story. So I, I really appreciated that. And once again, um, it, what's interesting also is that if you look at the end of the book, there's a, a class schedule that's there or a class sort of listing rather that's there. Um, and then one of the classes, uh, Dr. Strange is, is his name is supposed to be there to, to teach the class, but it's actually crossed out and is replaced. Um, which I think honestly is a clue as to, you know, maybe how that price, how the price of the school might be, you know, being paid. So I, I definitely think this is something, you know, worth picking up and, and I hope it continues to come on at a regular pace. I know that's a, a tall ask right now, but you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. Now, as far as the art is concerned, I've always just loved Umberto Ramos. I, I really just like, you know, similar to what you'll hear me say about, uh, Caitlin's art. Uh, in, in Bliss, I really just like a fluid sort of art form that tells the story. And I think the way 
that the kids are drawn and the the fact that there is there's a style of drawing that you can or, or art that you can see that is consistent through the book, but each character is definitively their own character. Um, you don't have a scenario where you see sometimes in some of the other books where, you know, everyone is, you know, human, regular old boring humans that, you know, you sometimes can't tell who's who. You have to sort of look and see and try to figure out from the context of the story who this character is. There, there's no issue with that here. Every character has a distinct look, um, a, a, a sort of aura about them in the book that you, you definitely – you definitely pick up on and you de it definitely helps you with the story as you're going through. So that's, I definitely recommend it. I'd say pick it up for the art alone, but also the, uh, the story is great. Um, I also read the other thing that I read because I have this weird affliction with not seeing a movie adaptation before I actually read some of the source material is the old guard volume one. Um, I know Steve's talked about this, you know, in the past, but you know, I just, I wanted to jump into it and read it. I'm going to try to go through it without spoiling anything because I know it's, you know, there are probably people like me who haven't seen the film yet, but um, don't want their experience tainted in some way. But, you know, I'll do my best. Don't hate me. Uh, so essentially you do have the scenario. It's just like it's written in the trailer. You have the scenario. We have these, these soldiers for all intents and purposes who have a very difficult time dying. And it's important that you pay no, you pay attention to that, have a very difficult time dying. Um, you know, and it talks about, you know, some of the, the mortality. This is a story that's written by uh, Greg Rucka, Le uh, Leandro Fernandez, Danilo Miwat, Jody Wynn. And uh, I think I, I just really, really, really like this story. I have to be honest, when I started the story, I really prepared myself for a very complex and dense story that was just going to take forever to sort of trudge through and figure out, but was going to pay off in the end. And I got the exact opposite. I thought the story was was as much told by the art as it was by the the dialogue. I like the the flow of things. I like that you got to talk about or read about each character and get a little bit of their backstory. Again, it's a matter of um, what it means to be mortal and how and what that how realizing that that I don't know what you want to call it that gift in the, in their eyes has been taken away from you. You know how does that impact the rest of your life? How does that impact the way that you? exist in the world and you relate to people and other things and, you know, memories and are they memories anymore? And the longer you live, what happens? I just really think that that became a really interesting side story here um, because it really is a matter of you have characters who really look at immortality as a gift, a blessing, a power, um, and they're trying to acquire this. But these individuals don't necessarily see it that way. You know, it's, it's a scenario where, you know, all the things that, you loved and maybe were the the reasons for you wanting to to live forever go away and then so now what are you living for um i, I really just I, i'm excited to see how this plays out in film um it's just a great story to sort of push through and 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 sort of ask some interesting questions i really think it asks some interesting questions we so often see characters in other books that are that are immortal and you they don't really go into what that means and how that impacts them from a human perspective so i was actually very shocked and surprised by this um i gotta be honest i've not been disappointed by mr rucka thus far so you know that but that's pretty much all i got i know i was robbed There's in my lightning serious uh serendipity going on today on the show the scotty and the gregs yeah, like how did we both randomly pick a Scotty Young book to talk about? But okay. Yeah. 
I'm actually very excited to see this to see this movie now. Again, like I said, I thought it was going to be one of those very very dense reads that was going to take a lot of effort. And honestly, it it was just a very well told story. Um, and I'm actually going to jump into the next volume pretty soon. Right on. Yeah, man. The uh, you will not be disappointed with the movie. Let me tell you. We'll talk about that more in just a little bit. Uh, you got me excited to go back to Strange Academy. I picked that up this past week. I got to dig in. I got to go back and read that first issue again. It's been a hot minute. It's very good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. I am going to put five minutes on the clock. Unless anybody has any other questions or observations for Aaron. Uh-uh. All right. Here we go. Five minutes on the clock for me. Ooh. Okay, here we go. Eat and Love Yourself, an original graphic novel by Sweeney Boo. Uh, You all know how much we love Sweeney Boo here on the podcast. Mindy is a young woman living with an eating disorder and trapped in a battle for her own self-worth. When she accidentally discovers something that will give her a chance to revisit her past, the relationship she's lost, the mistakes she's made, all of it, she thinks that she has a chance to undo every wrong turn, to put her life back on track. But will she be able to find her way back to her present? And just as important, a way to treat herself with love and kindness at any size. So that's from the back of the book. And now this is me. Uh, I was so upset (laughs) when I had missed the cutoff date for Sweeney Boo's Kickstarter for Eat and Love Yourself. Thankfully, Boom Studios has picked this book up for distribution, and now everyone can enjoy this revealing and heartfelt tale. So, a little personal information about me. You might have heard about some of this stuff throughout the years, but uh, here goes. When I was in middle school and high school, I weighed 70 pounds due to complications from Crohn's disease. I had a very terrible case of it, and it had ravaged my body in ways that are not appropriate to talk about here. So for years, all I would see when looking into the mirror is a ghost, you know, who I used to be. And to be perfectly honest, I still struggle with body image issues, even though I'm a relatively healthy 165 uh, at present. Still, I'd spent years thinking that I would uh, look sickly forever and that whispers and judgment from my peers was something that I'd endure for the rest of my life. Thankfully, That was not true. Here's a fun fact, though. When I moved from one school to another over summer break, a rumor began circulating that I'd hung myself in the woods behind Miller Place High School. That rumor was eventually debunked and replaced with word that I had died of AIDS over the summer. So, needless to say, I'm no stranger to having body issues of my own, and that's part of why Eat and Love Yourself hit me so hard Uh, in this book. In the book, Mindy discovers she discovers a magical chocolate bar that when eaten, she kind of she breaks off the little squares. Right. And so for each one that she eats, it brings her back to a time uh, when things were particularly hard for her. However, with each piece of chocolate that she eats and which each memory that's revisited, Mindy discovers all by slowly that not everything is her fault and that it's OK if you don't have a beach ready body so on and so forth. Uh, This was the kind of book that when I had finished reading it and I read it last night, my first impressions were that I had felt the content of the book, but that 
perhaps the events happening to this character and in this story didn't directly relate to me, that I wasn't able to really uh, appreciate the story for all it was. And then I, I kind of slept on it a little bit and I woke up this morning and I went to go and write some things about it that I just read and realized how much it really did bowl me over with uh, how honest it, it feels. And of course, Sweeney Boo's art, which is uh, what had attracted to, uh, to us, to her as a talent to begin with, does some really outstanding character work here. Uh, a lot of her characters have, are just bursting with personality. And there are particularly some really impressive crowd scenes. When this book first opens up, Mindy is out with her friend Shay. They're at a club. And just looking at all the different body types and, and all the different ethnicities and all the different people that have gathered in this place, you really get to see the scope of what Sweeney Boo can do with her characters. And it was it was really quite wonderful. Uh, so if this book sounds like it would be something that you would enjoy or something that maybe might be cathartic for you to read, I uh, I highly recommend it. It's a, uh, it's a heart stopper. That's for sure. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, other than that, what else do I got here? Uh, looking in my notes. Oh, so I started reading Heavenly Blues. Aaron had uh, brought this to the podcast last time. And uh, just to quickly recap, it is essentially a heist story mm. that it takes place in hell. And it is wildly entertaining from the get-go. I was, like, Aaron, when you said it was a Steve book, you could not have been more right. So mm. I, I opened this thing up and I was like, damn, Aaron, you know me. <laughs> I felt so, And I finally figured out what the art reminds me of. It totally reminds me of a combination between John Allison and Erica Henderson. Aha. Like through and through more, more so on the Henderson side than the, uh, than the Allison side. But uh, if you go and you read, uh, what was that? Assassination. Okay. Yeah. That was yeah. a goodie. Yeah. There's a lot of, I can see shades of assassination in this series. I'm only three issues into it. There are six total, so, but, uh, I'm hooked. I just couldn't stay awake last night to finish it. It's but so yeah, good. oh, it's, it's it's fantastic, and I love kind of getting the background for our characters. You know, stories with each issue. They're very complex characters. I'm very curious as to why some of them have landed themselves in hell, and it's funny. Like it's laugh out loud funny. There's mm -hmm. one character in particular, uh, this young uh, young girl that uh, is a part of the group. <laughs> that uh, while while having a very foul mouth cracks me up to no end. Uh, Miss Foley. I really, yeah, I, I really like her her take no shit attitude and and kind of her uh, her motivation for for wanting to pull off the job and uh, stuff like that. So very very funny, very entertaining, and I'm I'm absolutely going to finish it. I'm really glad that you brought that to my attention. I uh, I picked that up real quick when we were done talking last week. That's good. I'm glad to hear. Yeah. And uh, last but not least, quickly, you know, because there's never enough things to watch on television, uh, if you go and you watch The Old Guard, that's awesome, it's about a two-hour movie, but if you want to dig into something a little bit different and surprisingly very good, uh, I've only watched the first episode, so I can only judge so far, but there is a new show on Netflix called Warrior Nun, and... So Aaron also brought this to the show, I think maybe two weeks back, said that a friend had recommended it. Yep. 
Oh, man. Bronwyn and I watched the first episode, I think, the day before yesterday, and we had a blast with it. And we're we're totally shelving our Doctor Who watch and uh, whatever else we had going on so that we can finish this season. There has been just a, an uptick in quality and in production from some of these Netflix things. Like, this show is legit in terms of how it looks, how it feels. The uh, the emotional beats are, are off the charts. Basically, what you have here is uh, a girl who was a paraplegic. She dies. And she was staying in a home with a, with a, a bunch of nuns, and they're a part of this, you know, secret order and whatnot. And so they basically, they bring her body to a, uh, to a church or a cloister or whatever, and they're going to, you know, do their autopsy. They're going to fix her up and they're going to bury her. Only a, what I can only assume are demons show up and they basically have to stash this halo in the body of this girl. And it, it basically adheres to her spine and gives her supernatural abilities. She, now heals when you know from damage she is super strong she she's got all these superpowers right um but much of the of the first episode is her coming to grips with not only being resurrected but also being able to walk and able to run and able to dance and going down to the beach and feeling the sand between your toes these are things that she's never felt before so this is all very new to her. And it just, those those aspects of the show give it a little extra something that mixes really, really well with its supernatural elements. And you get a lot more than just a creature feature. And yeah, I, I was really, I was really kind of blown away by it. And, and I, I'm really looking into digging into the rest of it. The last thing that I'll say is... Whoever's in charge of television nowadays that is booking or licensing out music from from like indie artists is doing a really good job. The the soundtrack to the first episode of Warrior Nun was fantastic. There's a little bit of uh, Billie Eilish in there. There's some other bands, and it's not always their hits. It's some of their more obscure uh, songs and and reworked and remastered and remixed and stuff like that uh, just gives the show a very haunting feel to it and yeah I mean thumbs up all around I don't know if it's gonna tank uh, as I go forward but I don't think so I think there there's enough there in the foundation to make for a really good show and uh, I don't know if you're if you're at all curious about it I say I say dive in and see uh, see if you like it. So that's Warrior Nun uh, on Netflix. There you go. <laughs> that's my lightning round. Does anybody have any questions or comments? Is it? Would you consider it this generation's Buffy? Uh, that's a little hard to say. I think. I mean, it's it certainly looks a lot better than Buffy ever did. That's for sure. Uh, there. Wow. Dude, I love now, Buffy. Now I feel attacked. <laughs> I love Buffy. I kind of liked Angel a little bit more than Buffy at times, but I, I thought both shows were were great. I um, but no, it's it's too early to say whether or not this is the uh, this is the new Buffy. There's that. I don't think that we've gotten. 
we haven't gotten enough into what's actually happening. They really, this first episode is very much establishing the position that this main character is in and letting you feel her kind of her feelings of renewal and confusion and trying to be on the down low while also needing to depend on other people. She, she falls in with a group of kids and they're all kind of squatting in this rich person's house uh, that's vacationing somewhere else. And they're, 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 you know, jumping in the pool and sleeping in the beds and stuff like that. And so it's there that you really get to see her adapting to people in general, because she's spent, spent most of her life as a paraplegic inside of this, uh, you know, nunnery or whatever. And her only friend was her roommate, who is a much younger uh, little boy. Uh, I believe his name is Diego. So that's like the reach and the scope of her world until this all happens to her. And uh, yeah, it's uh, I, I I dug it. I dug, I dug it a whole lot. And I'm, I'm really excited to dig into more of it. So uh, once I finish it, I'll let you know if it's uh, Buffy tier. Okay. Uh, I'm on the edge of my seat. I bet you are. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, yeah, so there you go. Uh, quickly, just to recap before we get to talk about the movie, uh, books that were talked about during our lightning rounds, Star Number 5, Fantastic Four, Empire Number 0, Adventure Man Number 2, Wonder Woman 358, Lois Lane, more or less 1 through 12, uh, Strange Academy Number 2, The Old Guard Volume 1, Middle West Volume 1, Sandman Audiobook, coming July 15th to an internet near you. Uh, Lost Ember, the video game. Eat and Love Yourself, the original graphic novel from Sweeney Boo. Heavenly Blues, I did not give you the creative team for that because I'm a monster. And uh, Netflix's Warrior Nun. So, there you have it. I was going to try to look up the... I think Heavenly Blues was Ben Hahn, uh, is the writer... And, and Bruno Hidalgo. There you go. Yep. Yep. That is the score with that. All right. So let's talk about the old guard super quick. Melissa and I had uh, watched this. This is a new movie that came out. I'm going to bring it up on IMDb so I can tell you exactly who's in charge of this thing. Do, 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 bear with me, la, 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 la. So, <laughs> Gina Prince Bythewood is your director for The Old Guard. Screenplay written by Greg Rucka, uh, based on the graphic novel series from Greg Rucka uh, and, his, <clears throat> and his team, of course. So, this stars Charlize Th- uh, Theron, Kiki Lane... Um, uh, Matthias, 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 Matthias Schonarts, uh, Marwin Kenzari, Luca Marinelli. You all know how great we are with names. (laughs) And, uh, oh, here we go. Chiwetel (laughs) Ejiofor. I think I got that one right. Uh, big fan, big, big fan of his love anything that he is in. So, yeah, so... Aaron gave you a little bit of background about the uh, the old guard before during his lightning round. And I mean, I guess I'll just start this conversation off by it's been a while since I've felt that a movie based on a comic book property has so embodied 
those characters and that story with what we got here for the old guard. I will make no bones about it. I absolutely loved this. I thought it was super refreshing. I love me some Marvel movies. Marvel movies, for as exciting as they are and as fantastical as they are, that universe has kind of been on rails for a number of years, and you're you're almost always guaranteed to have a good time. You know, there's there's not too much to worry about when Marvel's putting out a uh, one of their new movies, and so for something like the Old Guard to come out, and from a relatively known unknown uh, director, it was just I was very curious as to how this was going to arrive, and oh my goodness, it is legit. It is legit. It has action out the wazoo. It is violent. It is quite violent. So if uh, you have a queasy stomach or uh, particularly uh, headshots bother you, uh, I don't know how they would after seeing something like John Wick. But (laughs) with John Wick, it was a little bit more comical than it is here. Here it's very uh, militaristic and, and, and done with purpose and taking people out to infiltrate a place, do a rescue mission, whatever, whatever the situation calls for. And all the relationships here, you can feel those centuries that these people have been banded together and traveling with one another. And the introduction of Kiki Lane's character, uh, I believe her name was Niall. Yeah, Niall. Yeah. And she was she was fucking great. Like, I, I was mesmerized by her uh, the entire time. And yeah, I mean, Charlize doing her kind of post-Furiosa and uh, Laura Broughton, super serious action star. She is bona fide in every way. She is a badass. And they they hit all the marks. They hit all the beats. If you read the series and you loved the series, much, if not all of that, is here. So uh, I'm going to shut up. <laughs> I'm going to let Melissa <laughs> share her thoughts, please. I agree with you, Steve, on a lot of that. Um, I think that this movie embodied the comic book in a brilliant way. I haven't read this comic for a while either, but as soon as it was over, I, t- I turned to my husband and said, I need to go back and read this comic again, because it just made me want to relive it over again. Um, <clears throat> and I think it helps that there were moments, in, even with my shitty memory there were moments in this movie that i could see pages you know i could see pages from the comic book that like they laid out the scenes and the 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 various situations they find themselves in i think were laid out right off the scenes of the comic book and so it really like you know you get you you remember moments that you read this story um i think one of the most exciting things for me about this the story of the old guard, and it's really fun to see it on the screen, is the fact that these uh, mercenaries, if you will, um, are most of them are from another time. And um, it's really cool when you kind of they give you these little flashes of their history and like where they come from and what they've lived. Um, in particular, uh, Andy, who is, um, oh, gosh, what is her? Her full name is is incredible. Oh, it's it's real. It's long. Here, let me see if I, I love can... her. I love her full name, but they they referred to her as as in her full name several times in the film, which I love. Um, some people, uh, what is it? It's like Andromeda something yeah. or other. It's real long. Yeah. Um, and 
like she you know she's just she's just so old like <laughs> she's like <laughs> biblical times old and and it's it's really cute to see in their relationship like they joke with each other about how old they are and they poke fun at each other about kind of where they came from um there's so much in their relationships that is like there's a great chemistry with this cast um that it makes all their relationships really believable uh, one of the things I absolutely love from the comic book is the relationship between Joe and Nikki. Um, they have this like super romantic, just like squishy, mm-hmm. you know, love affair between the two of them. They just worship each other and like they pull that off. Like I'm not a mushy kind of person. I don't like a lot of romance in myself. You okay? Hold on a minute here. No, not romance. Not for, romance. For the record, for the record, <laughs> you are far mushier than you let on. I've been friends with you for a couple of years no, now. Up, you up, don't please. fool me. Yeah, see? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, but they, you know, they do a great job in this of, like, balancing that extremely, like, fluffy relationship that those two have with each other with this just, like, gory, bloody, <laughs> straight up, you know, just chopping people into pieces kind of violence that happens alongside of it. And I, I love that. I love that juxtaposition of like, you know, Joey and, and Nikki can like, they can fight alongside each other and then immediately like launch into this diatribe of why they worship each other seconds later. And, um, and it's just so sweet and I love it. And, um, yeah. Niall is incredible. The uh, the action never stops. It's it starts very quickly and it doesn't stop. Um, there's no let up. I watched this with my husband, who's not a comic book reader, so he really didn't know much about it. Um, I just gave him a quick kind of rundown in the beginning of like, I think uh, the the beginning. I think it's um Andy and uh, Booker who sit down at the beginning and have a conversation about like their first job or their job that they're gonna do. Um, and some of that dialogue, he was like, what are they talking about? So I just kind of said, you know, they just think of them as like, um, what's the word I used earlier? <laughs> uh, like mercenaries, yeah. you know, they're like, they're hired hit people essentially, um, who are immortal and, you know, like they're from different times in, 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 in history. And once I kind of gave him that rundown, the rest of it he didn't need to know and i think it's really important for movies and shows that are based on comic books or anything really um that they can stand on their own two feet without the source material being required and i think this movie does great with that like yeah. you'll you're still going to enjoy every minute of it even if you have no idea what the old guard is um even if you don't know any anything about the comics but it does a brilliant the fight scenes are so good in this movie so good. Yeah. Yeah. The I, fight choreography. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I think, you know, like you said, Charlize Theron, like somehow, somehow along the way she became an action star. I don't know. Like, I guess this started with Furiosa, but like, that's her thing now. Um, I feel like she kind of like filled out where Angelina Jolie used to be, you know, um, if you see her on the front of something and you know that it's a, an action film, like you better see it because her fight choreography is amazing. And She's really good at it, and she makes it really believable. I think she's just a badass. I'm just going to believe that, that, like, I should never get in a fight with Charlize Theron because she just really knows how to kick somebody's ass. But what's even better about it is that it happened after she was 40 years old. Right. You know, which is so uncommon, you know, in the movie industry. That's a good point, Aaron. That's a great point. 
but she's like watching one of the best, my best, my favorite moments in this is watching her go at it with Niall, um, who's this very young girl. I don't know exactly how old she's supposed to be. She looks like she's maybe about 23 or something. Very young. Yeah, uh, yeah, I would say that's about where she yeah, is. Yeah, like young 20s, right? She's like, she's a Marine. So like watching these two women <laughs> in this, in this incredible fist fight in the back of a moving plane was like so intense and so fun and you could see that I while there was a lot of like tension going on they were both having some fun with it and and there were moments when you could see the two of them just like show respect for each other like oh that was a hard punch you know and they just they just they and they and they are almost equals they're very close to being equals which is really impressive considering you know that um how how long Andy's been kicking people's asses yeah for sure so yeah i was excited all the way through it i just never stopped Mm -hmm. being excited um yeah and then the little moments where you get to see like uh bits of of their relationship and the the emotional weight of their relationships were they were timed perfectly where like you just needed to take a breath for a few minutes so we're just gonna let these two people have a relationship for a minute you know and Mm -hmm. then back to kicking ass again (laughs) Yeah, and I think this worked really, really well as a film as opposed to a series. I, I think they definitely could have turned it into one, but I think I think that they're building this out, hoping hoping that it has some kind of franchise potential, uh, especially where Netflix is starting to give the green light to some of their originals, like um, Chris Hemsworth Extra- Extraction is now getting a sequel written by Joe Russo, so that's coming out. But I also wanted to point out, we talked a lot about the, the heroes of this movie. Uh, this movie has a a great villain to hate in uh, this character named Merrick. Yeah, what a who, punchable face, huh? Oh, my God. His uh, <laughs> the actor's name is Harry Melling. And he's this kind of like, I don't mean to be insulting, but like he's this like a crooked, weasley, angry little man who is basically he wants to get his hands on these, you know, uh, immortal warriors of fortune so that he can find out what is what makes them tick. Why are they coming back to life when they're gunned down right in front of his eyes and bullets are popping out of their skulls and healing themselves and they get right back up. And he wants to know what the deal is with that so that he can market it and he can, you know, mass produce it and stuff like that. He wants to steal their magic. Right. But where that kind of villain has been done to death in so many of these stories, Harry Melling really sells it. You know, he, he man, you want to see him get it <laughs> all throughout this movie. Every scene with him, he just made my skin crawl. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean that as a compliment. Like, he, he really, really pulled it off. He made me hate him real good. So, but yeah, the fight choreography is outstanding. It feels like ever since they really started pulling in uh, stunt coordinators who are now directing films and stuff like we mentioned Atomic Blonde and Deadpool and um, what's the other one that I was thinking of? Uh, Oh, God, I had it and then I lost it. Anyway, um, you know what I'm talking about. You and I have the same brain bubble problem. (laughs) Yeah, John Wick is the one that I was. I feel like John Wick kind of changed the game in in some ways where that that movie just presented such slick combat and like gun katas and 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 god knows what and hollywood looked at itself and was like ooh we need to we need to start stepping this up a little bit and like you said melissa there's 
there's brutality, but there's also fun in, in some of these scenes. And I think that really comes through. And uh, yeah, I mean, all around, if, if you've got an opportunity to see the old guard, uh, it's it's solid. It's real solid. So um, I just looked up Harry Melling um, because I knew I heard that name somewhere before, but I couldn't quite place it. And I'm realizing that he played Dudley in the Harry Potter movies. He did, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. he just looks a lot different and skinny. Oh, yeah. He's very skinny in this movie. I was like, wait a minute. I've heard that name. How have I heard that name? And I guess An some, older. Full circle moment. See, we're back to Harry Potter. I don't know how it happened. Yeah, I, I think, don't know how much you want to talk about her. No, no, never mind. Moving on. I also want to throw in a big props to the uh, makeup people on this film because they did. I think it could have come off as very cheesy to show characters dying and coming back to life. Um, but they did a fantastic job in one of the earlier scenes in the in the film. Yeah, it becomes yeah. very clear that like, oh, they're pulling this off in a very like sophisticated way. Like these people, you see wounds, you see blood, you see damage, but they come back in a way that makes it feel believable as far as, you know, people coming back to life can be believable. But it's not, you know, it's not like that you don't see, they don't feel like zombies, right? They just feel like people who, like, died momentarily and now are alive again. And yeah. it was just, it, it, all of it, all the makeup was done so well that even down to, like, there were times when I noticed, like, blood on clothing and, like, leftover bits of things that had been you know manipulated or broken at some point and it, and there's there's yeah there's some really gory stuff in this film like you see some wounds up close and personal <laughs> and they did such a fantastic job with it yeah there's also this kind of um like laughing at some of the battle damage right because some of them will come back into consciousness after being gunned down or whatever happened to them and they'll kind of shock themselves awake almost as if they were hit with uh with paddles mm-hmm. to the chest and they'll come back and they'll just be like oh ah man that's smarts like that's gonna leave a mark <laughs> that kind of thing because they're they're just so used to it given yeah. given their job and what they've been doing for all these centuries and and everything and yeah there's uh there's just lots and lots of great stuff in in this movie this was definitely and- uh very very refreshing in a time when theaters are not open and, and it's very cool that something like this can exist on something like Netflix, uh, and be as satisfying of a viewing experience as it was, you know, without a theater and, Mm -hmm. and remaining safe in your home and, and everything like that. So seeing a, seeing a broken arm bone, Oh, that's, jutting out of the person's arm, like slowly pop itself back into place and heal itself back together. It was ah. like, Ooh. <laughs> yeah. The, the sound design during that particular oh. scene, like, you can hear it knitting yeah. itself together. <laughs> I wonder how many ASMR fans are going to be drawn to this movie. Now. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. I'm looking forward to, I can't remember the name of the show. There's a YouTube channel that my husband likes to watch that. Um, that's got a couple, it's like three dudes who are stunt guys and like special effects workers and uh, uh coordinators and they like to watch they sit down and watch scenes from different movies and they basically take apart like how how they make it happen the the, the movie magic um awesome. yeah and sometimes they have like stunt people on there so they'll, they'll explain like hey i had to jump off of this and then in this moment that's the stunt person like taking over the real actor taking over um but this movie would be really fun to see that there's there's a moment when somebody gets tossed upside down 
Oh yeah. And, yeah, and the guy hits the ground like head first and is in head, an unnatural way. In a very uncomfortable and natural way and you hear like a crack and I was like, "Oh, my neck just hurts watching that." <laughs> it's very fast, but it's just slow enough so that you get a good look at what happened and it's like, "Oh, <laughs> it's brutal. It's yeah. definitely brutal. They did not uh they did not pull any punches with this in terms of the action or some of the violence. Yeah. All right, so that's uh, Melissa. If you don't have any other thoughts, I think we're going to move on. I'll stop. Okay. <laughs> uh, I feel like if we talk about it anymore, we're going to give something away, and I, yeah. I really want people to go and enjoy this. All right, so we have reached the end of uh, all the stuff we had planned before our interview with Sean Lewis and Caitlin Yarsky. We are going to take a little break, and then after the music, Sean and Caitlin will join us, and we will have an amazing interview with them. You'll hear all about Bliss, and uh, and then after that, we'll wrap up the show. So uh, thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned. We've returned from our break and would like to welcome both Sean Lewis and Caitlin Yarsky back to the show. Together, they've created the layered and vicious werewolf thriller Coyotes for Image Comics and are once again combining their Wonder Twin powers for Bliss, a seriously strange supernatural series that's just as mysterious as it is positively gorgeous. Today, we'll be talking with them about Bliss, which is set, uh, set to have its premiere issue debut on comic book store shelves and online this July 22nd. Sean, Caitlin, welcome back to the Talking Comics podcast. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having us. You're very, very welcome. It's been two and a half years, January 10th, 2018, since you both joined us here on the podcast for your collaborative comic, Coyotes, and now you're back to deliver Bliss. Uh, another supernatural story set up at Image Comics. Uh, how does it feel to be back during a pandemic? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's fun to get. To, it's always fun to talk with you guys. It's also just nice to talk about the book and and to actually have the book coming out. You know, we had a delay, so it's it's nice to be like, oh, okay, this is happening. Ugh, I can't yeah. even go ahead, Caitlin. Oh no, yeah, I'm just super grateful that the book is happening at all and that we're, you know, able to talk to you guys again and it's it's uh we really lucked out there. I can't even imagine what that's been like. We might get to some of that stuff a little bit later, but for now, um either one of you could feel this one. Uh can you give our listeners a brief overview of Bliss and perhaps tell us when the idea for the story first came about? Well, I think I mean, Caitlin and I started talking pretty soon after Coyotes about wanting to do another book together. Um, like the, I think we became like pretty good friends doing, um, we didn't know each other before the book that well, but then we were doing these signing tours and we got to know one another a bit more and the collaboration had been kind of nice. So we started talking and then we went through a couple of different iterations. Like Caitlin had been traveling a lot. And so there's definitely some influence from the places that she had been working remotely at. I think we went down an entire like uh, multiple islands fantastical concept for a while before oh, wow. before we abandoned that and then moved towards Bliss. Do you remember that, Kate? Oh yeah, we had like a whole different adventure with like yeah, like a, like a completely new world and it was definitely influenced by like 
Thailand and Portugal and all the places I've been traveling and yeah. And then that kind of moved and then there was just one night that I think we were talking, you know, we knew that that for whatever reasons that wasn't, you know, doing it for us. And then um, we just started talking about this general idea, if I remember correctly, of like how do people do really bad things and and just kind of be okay with it. Um, and then that started moving. I think like, you know, usually like Kate and I will just kind of jam things whenever we don't know what to do, like whether it's on, on like Twitter direct message or text or phone calls, we'll just be like, Oh, maybe this could happen and that could happen. And why do people do that? Well, maybe there's a drug. Okay. Let's say there's a drug. It's kind of like improv theater. We just kind of keep going like, yes. And like, (laughs) okay, there is a drug. And then there's, what if there's gods, but they're like animals. Uh, Yes. and, And what else? And it just keeps kind of, it just kept kind of building out until I think the, the bones of bliss were there. So that was probably, I don't even know when we started on the book proper a, a, a year ago, even yeah, more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Last spring, I think. Right. And, and you asked, um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of avoiding what the book is about. I mean, basically, <laughs> basically it's about a city called feral city that is having a, a big drug and crime problem. The drug that is afflicting them is called bliss and it allows you to – it allows whoever takes it to forget horrible things that they've done. And so people that are feeling extreme levels of guilt or people who are committing crimes and want to be able to live with themselves are all taking this en masse. And what you come to realize is that bliss is created by these these gods and primarily the, the goddess Leth, the goddess of oblivion, and that like the memories that are being – that are escaping from people are, are dropping into the river and going back to her. And she basically needs a hitman. And this, this poor sap Benton who has a sick son and is trying to figure out how to make his family work, um, becomes that hitman. Hmm. Damn. <laughs> so what motivated you to tell this story, especially during this particular time and climate? Do you want to take that one, Kate? Oh, boy. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I guess I would just say that we we have weirdly prescient themes when it comes to our comics that we don't necessarily do on purpose. (laughs) But, like, you know, with all the feminism and everything and um, stuff that was going on on the border for coyotes, that was, like, a a really crazy coincidence. And not just coincidence, but I think it was also, like, in the air, you know? And I think Bliss has the same kind of vibe where there's a lot that's happening right now that you can kind of connect, connect our story to. Yeah. I mean, I think I know for myself and I know conversations Kate and I both have, I I don't know if it's because we both are Irish or, or not, but I think themes of like redemption and shame and forgiveness. Um, I mean, those are, I, I know for myself, like I feel like every book, I write and every play I've ever written tends to circle around like how do people how are people good like in a really complicated and complex world how do you how do you create a good life how do you is that even possible I mean the nihilist in me is always like is that even possible <laughs> but but I think like I mean I don't think uh, neither of us ever when we were talking about we're like oh this is so timely if anything I think there was times where I was like ah, I don't know that anyone's going to care about this like yeah this meditative <laughs> this meditative book about redemption like there's so much going on in the world who's going to even want to spend the time with it I mean I have more worries about that than like yeah we really we've really captured the moment, you know, (laughs) um, it's only been lately. Like, it's interesting. There's been a couple of reviewers who've reached out to me and they're like, how did, how did you guys do this book so quickly? Which is 
you know, which we don't, we take a lot of time with the books. It was just like how to add, like, it, it just seems to be hitting on a lot of themes that are happening right now. And I'm just like, well, that's kind of an accident. It wasn't really written with those themes. Mm-hmm. Like, like, like specifically what you're concerned about as much as just like Kate and I were just kind of like, how do people do bad things? You know, like it was just really that basic. Like generally philosophical conversations we were having. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of our issues come out that way is Kate and I'll just like, you know, we did this recently. We were looking at the the, the second arc of it, right? The, the the issue five, and we were having some troubles with like, ah, the issue's just not working. And we just hopped on the phone, and it was like, it it kind of started just at a philosophical sense of like, right? What are we saying? Like, where do we think redemption is at now? Is redemption bad? Like, is it bad to redeem people? And that just kind of spun out into like an issue that I think I'm like really really proud of now. Yeah. Um, and that's just kind of I think how we've. I think that's the good thing is like there's this been this cool trust, um, at least that I've felt that's built with Kate where like I can hop on the phone with her and we can talk kind of openly about our own like feelings in a way. And then, and then that can kind of build towards like we can redirect that towards character and start going like, oh, that that would make a really cool issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, redemption seems to be something that's in short supply these days, uh, especially with things like social media and what's happening in the government and entertainment and all of that sort of things. Uh, It seems to me that whenever the two of you work together on a project, you create a story that's populated by enigmatic characters who are tasked with confronting the fantastic. Was there a particular inspiration behind the character creations in Bliss? Oh, that's all Kate. I mean, Kate is amazing. I, I just, I think Kate's such an incredible artist and especially when, she deals with the fantastic. There's just such an incredible, I don't know. Kate has this amazing ability of like the eyes of her humanistic, her natural human characters tell so much that it's like, it's like seeing a great close up in a movie, but then also like, she's got this great imagination and, and fantastical influence. So it's just, a lot of times it's just me turning to Kate and going like, what do you want to draw? Like, <laughs> like, like I'm not going to impose anything on you. Like just what do you want to draw? Cause it'll be better than anything I could imagine. Right on, man. Uh, Caitlin, do you have uh, anything for this question? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm just, I, I'm really grateful that um, that Sean and I have so much, again, like trust and, and um, that I have so much freedom to explore visual themes. And, and it's also cool that, you know, Sean and I are both mythology dorks. So, um, <laughs> you know, like... You know, he's totally on board with with all the all the Greek mythology and stuff that's, you know, there's themes of that in the book. And, um, you know, like Leth is a, I didn't even know about Leth. Uh, there's a bunch of gods that, I mean, uh, preside over rivers, right, in Greek mythology. And I, I think I knew about Charon, right, the the um, for the river Styx, but I didn't yep. know about the other ones. And, and Sean knew all about that. So that was really cool. And, um, yeah, and we were talking about the mob gods and everything. And I was just like, you know, uh kind of going for this lizard sort of amphibian theme. And um, I think part, partly because of the, the whole river theme too, you know, cause there's a, a, like a fantastical river involved. And I was thinking about creatures that live near rivers and uh, stuff like that. So yeah, it's, it's just, it's really fun. We can throw stuff back at each other all the time and come up with the craziest stuff. And it's like making a movie with two people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The two of you have always had an incredible chemistry. That was very, very obvious from when you were working on coyotes. Cause that, that series was fire. Uh, Bob, why don't you take the talking stick and uh, take it away? 
Thank you, sir. Yeah, Caitlin, uh, mentioning Coyotes, that was just a really great-looking series. I feel, though, that this first issue of Bliss was something even more special. It's a new level of mastery, page panel layouts, as well as a really wonderful usage of, of color palettes here. Are there any new influences on your art? Well, besides hard work, although I could swear I saw some Emerios in your framing sequences. And uh, how far along in your journey to being the ultimate Caitlin Yarsky do you feel you've, you've got? <laughs> Oh, thanks. Well, I mean, I think Coyotes was like a huge learning experience for me. It was my first series uh, that was published. So it was it was basically just all trial and error and trying to figure out what I was doing. So I think Bliss is just sort of like the next step for me. You know, like I've I kind of got, you know, I'm, I'm kind of shedding the training wheels a little bit. And um, I feel I don't feel like I'm there yet. Like, I don't feel like I'm at the like where I need to be. But I think that that's kind of that's kind of the natural thing for most people, right? When they, when they, uh, they're working in comics, they, nobody feels really like they, like they've peaked, right? They, they feel like there's always more to learn and more to, to, you know, like ways to improve. Sure. Um, so, I mean, like, for example, I can't look at coyotes without cringing. <laughs> and, uh, wow. Yeah, I know. It's, 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 it's insane. Um, and I, I kind of do that with everything. Like I feel proud of something for a little while and then I kind of, immediately think, you know, or, or, you know, like maybe like a week goes by and I go, oh man, I could have done that better. <laughs> sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I love, um, I mean, I think you guys mentioned any reader when we were doing like the, the testing stuff earlier. Sure. Today. I love her work. I love, um, uh, James Heron is a new, relatively new person, not new person, but like for me, like a new influence. Um, it, it's just so much energy in his panels and his characters and layouts. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm just, um, I'm always trying to find new people to um, influence me and inspire me to keep going. Oh, that's great. You know, you, you mentioned about people wanting to grow. We were talking about Dave Stevens, the fellow created The Rocketeer uh, on the show a couple of weeks back. And no matter how gorgeous his artwork, he always felt it was awful. No matter what he looked at, it's like, oh, I just frittered away all my talent. What am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> so, you, you, unless you you grow, you stagnate. So good, good for you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> All right, Aaron, you are next up to bat. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So you kind of talked about this a little bit earlier in one of your responses, and I kind of wanted to take it a step further and get your thoughts on this. But So as we are watching the world uh, hopefully evolving at a much faster rate, whether it be politically or socioeconomically or with diversity or race and authority, um, were you motivated to make any changes to the story uh, that you wanted to tell? And as you sort of look at what you have planned out, um, and paying attention to the climate, are you either concerned or excited about uh, how that story will be received? Um, I mean, reception you can't control. I mean, uh, everything I make, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I try and build a shield for myself, but I'm also always terrified of the reception in, in the sense of like, you can't control it. It's a thing that was in your brain and that you fell in love with and you've spent like at least a year, if not more time on. So anything anyone says about it, you're like, oh, God, I just I, I in some ways it's only a, it's not even celebratory when people say good things. It's just a relief. It's like, oh, OK, OK, I can I can I can shower this week. Like I can get out of bed. Fantastic. Thank you. everyone. Um, and so like that one's that's kind of tough. I mean, the way that Kate and I've always worked, too, is like. You know, we we kind of do outlines, but in truth, the issues have always been kind of independent. Like even when we've had an outline, issue by issue, kind of 
takes on its own identity past what we planned. And I don't know if that's to react to the world, but also, I'm sure it's 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 partially that as well as like our own kind of growth and grappling with the world. I mean, I it's funny. I don't know if it makes me a, a good writer or a really problematic writer. Like I often don't know what I fully think or believe. I I doubt myself constantly. I find the world consistently confusing. Mm-hmm. And and so the the writing, you know, I had teachers when I was in grad school who were so definitive on like I write to communicate my beliefs and thoughts to the world. And I'm often like, I write to figure out what the fuck I think and believe. Like it, it helps me kind of work out the dialectic because I, I believe in, it's funny. I'm, I I believe in people, you know, or at least I want to believe in people. So the, the, that kind of forces me, I think a lot of the times to treat all of them, even if I don't agree with them, as humanistically as possible, which, which is hard, you know, and it it can be problematic. Um, it's funny though. I, I would never think it's only because of people asking me that I'm like, wow, is it, is it really like a a lightning rod of controversy to write a book about redemption and forgiveness? Um, and I'm like, maybe, maybe it, Maybe it is. So, I mean, there's definitely, I mean, the world definitely influenced. I think us thinking about like, how do people do bad things is very much looking at the world and going like, it feels like everyone's being really selfish. It feels like everyone hates each other, you know? And I think social media helps propagate that. Like if you're on Twitter, the amplification is the negative. So you're just like, wow, millions of people think that. And then I look at the trend and I'm like, well, it's only like a thousand people tweeting about it, but it feels it's so present on my own feed that I'm like, everyone believes that a mask is moronic. What's going on? Like, how do I deal with this? And then I'm like, ah, it's, that's 1,100 tweets for like, you know, a billion people. So, so yeah, I, it, it, I think it influences it, but not. I don't think ever in a way where Kate and I are like, hey, did you see the news today? We're gonna have to address that. <laughs> but yeah, but I, but I know we definitely have talks where it's like I'm having this thought and I'm struggling with it. I think this is where I actually love the collaboration. Is like we can get on the phone or on text and go like, hey, I'm having this thought today. And sometimes it starts with us not talking about the book. It'll just be like one of us will write and be like, are you having a rough day today? I'm struggling with this. And suddenly that'll get us talking about like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm kind of am too, and I don't know if I feel comfortable saying it. And I don't feel comfortable saying it. and like then it spins out into like oh that might find its way in the book just because it's it's who we are right now um so i think we do respond but not in a very <laughs> probably it'd probably be smarter if it was tactical like oh we'll do this and it'll get like a lot of attention we'll really create a change on that i think it's more of us going like i'm grappling with this and if i'm grappling with it and i'm being honest i gotta talk about it and maybe other people are grappling with it too yeah, I can imagine how trying to plan that out and being strategic would probably add to the pressure of wondering if you're getting it right. So, yeah, oh, I can God. see your point. Imp- I think it would be so, so hard. <laughs> yeah. So, Caitlin, um, from my perspective, when I open up a book, I, I usually look at the art to tell me half the story um, from the first panel and sometimes from the cover. Um, as you guys were going through this, did you guys discuss exactly what part of the story that your art would be telling? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that again, it's a really, it's an unusually organic process between the two of us. So, um, I, I think, you know, like I, I'll get a script from, from Sean and, and we'll, I'll kind of figure out how I want to pace it and everything. And we'll talk about it and we'll talk about how the characters are going to look. And, um, 
Yeah, it's not really it's not really like a here's how we're going to designate how you tell the story and how I tell the story. Like sometimes Sean will put something in there that I, you know, that didn't I didn't uh, expect and that will tell more of story and then and sometimes I'll add a couple panels in there that will kind of imply something that wasn't in the script and then we'll talk about that and see if that works. So it's it's kind of yeah, it's de- definitely organic. Yeah, I think there's a true mutual ownership. I, there's always every once in a while I'll see fights online about like who's more important, the writer, or the artist, in comics, and I'm like, it's, this is such the wrong fight. Mm-hmm. Um, where I think like you know like the scripts I give Kate, like I trust her implicitly, and we know we talk about we talk about everything that's going to be in the story from conception. Like Kate and I are there from the very beginning talking about like. Throwing out – like it is just these big jam sessions like of, of texts and, and voicemail messages or, or phone messages where we'll be like – Kate will throw out an idea of like can the gods be amphibians and it will just be like, yeah, why not? And like – Sure. And, but also I'm like I'm – like, I'm not going to control that. Like as a writer, I'm not going to suddenly go like, OK, I've got to do all this deep – like I need to control how you're going to make them amphibians. I'm just like you clearly have a, a very clear idea of what that is and I do not. So I'm not even going to pretend. Like let's let's give that all over. And like in terms of the breakdowns, like even with the scripts, like basically what I write and give to Caitlin are like somewhere between a short story and a screenplay. And then it's really Kate figuring out like with that – with the way it's laid out going like, okay, this is the way that it's going to play out page wise. Cause there's things that Kate does. I think more writers should trust their artists. Like there's certain things that Kate does in issue one that like, I would never fucking think of. Like there's these little panels when, when Benton goes to see the gods, the way Kate has the, I, I've already talked to her about it, but I just love them so much. There's these like little circular, like oval panels, like that she has that tell extra story. Like, so there's the, there's the real time story going on. And then in these little ovals, there'll be like a mark towards the past or like a history of the mob gods. And it's all visual. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I wish I was a genius. I wish I was Alan Moore, but I'm not. Like, I just would never think of doing that. That's something Kate's brain can do. And then, like, once I see the pages, I'm like, oh, I can, I can manipulate text to make that work even more. That, like, that it's just everything is in a constant, um, like symbiosis with each other. Cause I feel like a lot of our editing is from the back and forth of like, you know, we'll talk about it. Uh, like one on one, and like we'll have an idea of the script, and then like when I write the first draft, that kind of edits down what our conversation was about, and then Kate will start showing me pencil, sending me pencils, and then I'll be able to go back in and start thinking about like, oh, I'm going to change some of the text because that's awesome, and we can re-edit things, and there's an Easter egg there that I can now bring into another issue, and and so like it is organic in a way that I think if we had an editor would freak them the fuck out, but <laughs> but I think that it is just like we both know that we own the story and we both believe each of us are doing the right thing for it. And we both have the ability to turn to each other at a point and go like, I don't know that that idea is going to work. Right. And like, I think that's where it just kind of, it really shapes in a way that I, I, it's, I don't know that I really enjoy. Well, then on that same point, as I was going through the book, one of the things I noticed was that each panel seems both at the same time grand and at other times uh, very fluid um, right down to the architecture and some of the details on the buildings. And, you know, at times I was thinking, wow, who went into the city planning for this um, with some of the street layouts? Um, a couple of times I got a San Francisco vibe going there. What what were some of those inspirations? Um, well, yeah, I mean, so this is going to sound silly, but like I, I when I'm doing like visual storyboarding, you know, like kind of like mood board kind of stuff when I'm trying to figure out the look and feel for things, um, I go to Pinterest a lot. 
Um, it's a weirdly, it's a weirdly perfect image search kind of thing where you can kind of look up like, you know, interesting architecture or, you know, um, like haphazard buildings and things like that. And you'll find really, really cool photos and, and, uh, and really great artists and, uh, posts that can help you kind of put together like a vision of what you want things to look like. So that's what, what I do. I, I put together like hundreds of pictures of things from all over the place, you know, between, um, uh, you know, illustrators and concept artists to photographers and everything just to kind of get a feel, you know, like I really love, um, the background art for, uh, triplets of Belleville. Uh, yes. so that's May. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't really like doing backgrounds. Um, I don't like doing straight lines and like really rigid, um, perspective. I mean, I really appreciate and, and uh, respect people can do that, but I, I, it makes me want to die. So I, I have to like find ways to enjoy doing backgrounds. So I, I was looking at those and I was thinking, well, everything's kind of wobbly and looks like it's kind of falling over a little bit. And, and um, so it's, it's stuff like that that kind of helps inspire me to like work on things. You know, uh, Ian McHugh is also another guy who does a really beautiful buildings and trees and stuff that are really like shambly looking and um, organic, even though they're not, you know, so. Oh, cool. Great. That's the second time that triplets of Belleville has come up on this podcast in like the last two or three weeks. Really? <laughs> yeah. I was talking about, uh, the illusionist and, uh, show the other day. Well, not the other day, the other week, but, mm -hmm. uh, that's amazing. I love those movies so much. I love the overall look of them. So I had mentioned the term, uh, enigmatic earlier when talking about your characters, though I feel as if that descriptor only scratches the surface when trying to convey how the people and creatures in your stories are presented as complex personalities to follow through an otherworldly epic. Can we talk about Benton? He's a very interesting character in that he's portrayed in two diametrically opposed lights throughout the first issue. From a narrative perspective, he's a loving dad who's been painted into a corner, but then you have this courtroom setting where he's almost demonically portrayed. Uh, when creating his character, did one of you have a particular design in mind, or was it a collaborative effort, both artfully and narratively? I think that, I mean, all of the visual design and thought of that came from Kate. Um, I think in terms of his, the complexity of him, or like those, the dual, let's say the duality of him. I mean, he, he and Perry, his son, are, I mean, unfortunately or unfortunately, are very much based on me and my dad, which was not a plan or a goal when we started working on the book, um, but just kind of became that. Um, my dad was, you know, in and out of my life a lot and was this really complex figure. Like I would, when I would go and visit him in Denver, sometimes he'd be wildly broke and sometimes he would own the entire floor of a building in downtown Denver. And um, I would meet people who'd be like, Oh, he loves you so much. He's been thinking about you forever. And then like my mom's recollection of him is like a completely different character. Like if you took, if you talk to two different people who knew him incredibly well, the person that they would paint for you would be wildly different. I just remember I went to his, he passed away. So when I went to his funeral, they did this thing. I haven't been to a lot of funerals, so maybe this is normal, but where like anyone could step up to a microphone and give kind of like a short eulogy or remembrance of him. Hmm. And it was super strange. Cause like some people got up there and they described a guy I, I didn't know. And I was like, I, this, and then some people got up there and said incredibly amazing and nice things. Some people got up there and said, not amazing and nice things. And that he, <laughs> he was this really, um, 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, just like I don't. I mean, I guess duplicitous. Like this, this very far-reaching figure. And like for some people, he was incredibly kind, like a Robin Hood figure. And for other people, he was like this violent kind of monster. And so just for whatever reason, my mind and body decided as we were working on this book of like, oh, I remember that moment with Rick. Like, I wonder what that would be like as a scene. And then I'm like, ah, shit, it's a good scene. Um, and, and it just kind of filed in a little bit more that way. I can definitely relate to that. I had a very similar experience when my father had passed away in that, you know, I had known him to be a very um, – just a person who was kind of all over the map and then having other people come forward and kind of describe aspects of him that I suppose he kept private or only kept between him and those people. And it was kind of interesting to learn more about him through other people giving like testimonials and whatnot. Um, not all of it was great, but uh, some of it was, uh, was quite entertaining. He was, uh, he was quite the dude. <laughs> was, well, just, I think it's an interesting thing because it kind of argues to this, like, this idea of the fragments of our own, our own personalities, right? Like, cause it makes me think about like, okay, people who knew me when I was in grad school versus like when I ran my first theater company versus when I was in second grade and fat and overweight and mad and sad at everybody. I'm like, each of their stories of me would be a wildly different story, mm-hmm. right? Like, cause, cause they're meeting me in different fragment, like little moments of my life. And they're only knowing me for those pieces and that was the funny – that was the thing that was so strange to me because I had mostly known him through my own personal interactions, which were up and down, and my mom, who was all negative. And then going into a funeral where people are, are, are telling all these different stories and some from years of his life that I wasn't even in contact with, I just was like, oh, man, there's just so many – I have so many dads. Like there's so many versions of him that yeah. um, it just became this interesting like ref- reflection and there was times where he was really shitty to me. So like, I think I also relate to Perry in that way where it's like, what is it to defend the person who's really hurt you? You know, but you feel compelled to do the defending. <laughs> you know, like what, what is that? Um, yeah. <laughs> so let me, uh, Caitlin, let me ask you, what, did you have a particular design in mind when drawing Perry's character? I think Aaron had said something to the effect of that. He, Reminds him of Lin Manuel Miranda. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I didn't have a design in mind, but um, I was definitely asking around on Facebook for uh, models to, because I, I I take pictures of um, like I, I use people as models uh, and kind of look at them as reference when I'm drawing. So um, and a lot of the time I well for coyotes for example there wasn't anybody that necessarily. Uh, looked exactly like the people that were posing. It was more I was making stuff up. But for this series, um, the characters look like the people that I'm drawing. So uh, the the person who volunteered was a friend of a friend on Facebook. And when I saw his pictures, I was like, oh, my God, this guy is so interesting looking. And um, he was more than willing to come out. And, and, I mean, he was the only person who wasn't already a friend of mine who was posing for this because Mabel is a friend of mine named Jackie. She does a really popular comic called Underpants and Overbites, which is really awesome. <laughs> yeah, and um yeah, and the other the other characters are also friends. Uh even the guy who's who's bullying uh Benton on the street with the milk uh oh, yeah. is a friend of mine named Magnus. Yeah. So um 
Yeah, so this guy volunteered, which was really awesome, and he's just been... I just was trying to find people that were really interesting-looking and fun to draw and uh, and unique. So, uh, yeah, he, he volunteered, and every every couple months I go up back up to Rochester and do photo shoots with them. Oh, right on. That's cool. So you mentioned Perry's mother, Mabel. Uh, she's in this first issue, a character who vouches for Benton's loving nature from the get-go. Uh, with regard to her character, can you tell us if we eventually get to see her play a larger part in the story? Yeah, she she's going to show up more and more, especially in the the first arc, and she'll show up in the second arc too. The, um, without giving away too much, I mean, she, she, there's a hmm, how do I talk about this? Um, yes, <laughs> <laughs> it could be as simple as that. <laughs> Mabel will show up more in in the book for certain. Kate uh, also could... did an, an an amazing cover of her um, that I believe is that for issue four the oil painting that you did it's yeah, so beautiful thanks oh wow uh, okay we can move on to let's talk about Perry how trustworthy is he as our narrator is his perspective not biased by being the son of the accused like how much information does he actually have and who gave it to him perhaps that's where Mabel comes in. Yeah, I mean, he's seen a lot of it. And I think in the in the next couple of issues, you know, the the way that it's been an interesting thing, like, I, I, I hope at some point I choose to do simpler things with the writing, because it, it's a weird juggling act, because right now, like the structure of it, I got really fascinated watching the social network, because I was like, if, if anybody doesn't know that movie, it's the, the Mark Zuckerberg movie of the Facebook movie. Mm-hmm. I'm a Fincher fanatic, but I was blown away watching it from a writing standpoint because I was like, nothing about this movie should fucking work. Like everything I've ever been taught as a writer is this is bad in the sense that like it's a lot of memory scenes. But also it's like if I was if I was told by somebody what the movie was about, I wouldn't go see it because they'd be like, yeah, a guy makes a a website and then you just watch a lot of depositions. It would be like, that's insane. Like I would never watch this movie. Um, so I got really fascinated by like, oh, the court proceeding, like having having to give testimony is a very redemptive and, and is so tied to our concept of justice that I was like, thematically that works. But I also like the tr- the difficulty of making that active, mm-hmm. like really active. And like I-, I love Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and, yeah. how, you can, and how memory manipulates and, and like how I was talking about with fragmenting, that plays into it a lot. So like the book continues to do a lot of what you're seeing in issue one where like, I think our, our foreign rights agent was like, Oh, this book is like Sandman meets eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. That's how I'm selling it in Europe. If it's okay with you, which I was like, I love both of those things. Go for it. Like, um, but it does that where like you're, you're hopping in and out of time on a regular basis, but Perry has seen, he's reliable. I think the thing that's interesting about Perry is that he's conflicted. You know, he, he knows that what other people are saying about his dad is also not wrong. Like, so when, when the town, when townspeople are like, he's a monster, he did horrible things. Perry's like, yeah, you're, I, I know that you're right. He's also a guy who you don't know has in a lot of ways saved the city quietly. So like we have to, we have to figure out, are we willing to rectify those two versions of my dad? Or if we're going to just have one, um, and he knows the complication of that. And he himself has been hurt in ways that he's he's I would say he's more conflicted about 
am I doing the fully right thing by trying to make him a full person or would it be easier and better for everyone if we denied any of the good things he did? Cause as Benson goes on, I mean, you're, you're, he's, you're going to find he's done some amazing things. He clearly has also done. You'll also find he's done some really horrible things. Um, so it's, it's both. And Perry's at the center of that storm kind of being the first of many judges that his father's going to have. Complexity is the name of the game. <laughs> I also, I just want to put it out there. I absolutely love Michel Gondry, uh, particularly oh, his work for Bjork, some of the music videos. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Was that, wait, actually, was that Gondry or was that Chris Cunningham? It might be both. I could be confusing it. I'm he, <laughs> he definitely did the one, the, I'm trying to think, I can't remember the song now, which uh, it's the street scene. Um, uh, oh, So Quiet? Yeah. I believe okay. that. I'm almost certain that's Gondry. Yeah. Uh, Sunshine of the Spotless Mind was one. I, I used to tell people that that was my favorite film for like a number of years. Uh, it, it blew me away. He has such a odd dreamlike quality to to his directing and his characters. And, and man, I can't even remember the last time I saw something that he was involved in. I should look him up. It's been a while. He, he made he made uh, Be Kind Rewind and that did not yes. do very well. And that was yes. kind of the, the stop for a while. But also, I mean, Charlie Kaufman's writing, Charlie Kaufman writes lots of characters who are in a lot of ways grotesque in some way Mm -hmm. and makes them wildly human. And I think that's a really, a really like Kaufman does it in a more kind of surreal, like funny way. And I think of other people who like, I think influenced me coming up like Todd Solans who do it in a very like deal with this way. Um, I, I, I don't know that type of writing that, that, that those kind of gray areas and even black area, dark areas of, of humanity are really, I just think interesting. Indeed. Okay. So this next one is a bit of a, has a bit of a long road to it. So please bear with me as I read this off. How do you vilify someone who's doing a God's bidding when other people are committing all these villainous acts? For example, as Benton's walking through the hospital and city, we learn that a great many people have committed horrible acts with the intention of using bliss to forget about them. Are these people being held accountable? How does it feel as if Benton has become the scapegoat? That's a close reading of the book. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really liked a, it. <laughs> yeah, it's hard that, to answer that one without spoiling things. <laughs> yeah, Kate, do you want to, I mean... He's been at the forefront of all this too. I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? Oh wow, um, yeah. I I mean, accountability is is the the trickiest thing that we've been trying to navigate. You know, accountability and redemption in the same breath. Um, because you know, right now everything is so polarized and so black and white on social media, and um, and for some, you know, you know. For good reason, some of the time, you know, um, there's a lot of people that have been getting away with a lot of things that have been terrible and um, and a lot of systemic problems that we've been having for a long time that we've been ignoring. But, yeah, the redemption thing, I mean, if if there's no redemption and if people can't change, then what the hell's the point to any of it? Right. So, yeah. So I think it's just. um, Yeah, I mean, Benton's definitely a scapegoat, I think. I mean, I'm not sure how you feel, Sean, but I think that he's he's done some really terrible things. Um, but he's, he's the, he's the one you're, that everybody wants to just peg for everything. And, um, and he has maybe better reason to do what he's doing than <laughs> some of the other people that 
have been mentioned in the story. So I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a weird, it's a weird line to, to walk, um, trying to, trying to keep somebody accountable for their actions and taking the consequences of their actions, but also recognizing when someone has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Sean? Yeah. I mean, I mean, part of it for me is, I mean, we're actually, we're taking him out of the group, right? Like if you never met Benton, he would just be one of this many group of people that you, you see flashes of who are doing horrible things. Right. And I think that's where our rage really gets at. You know, I, I, I always equate it to you. I, I, I did some time. Um, it'll sound weird now the way I phrase this, but um, there was when I first started my playwriting career, a bunch of my first projects, I was working in prisons. Um, and it was this interesting thing, right? Like if you take if I would talk to my relatives about going to the prison, they would get absolutely terrified and be like, why are you going to be around like murderers and killers? And it's it's this kind of superficial thing we put on, right, that groups them. These are it doesn't take in their individuality or the individuality of their crime or and and the bigger thing, the more complicated thing is the individuality of their journey, right? Their journey towards redemption or away from it, because because everyone who's an inmate is going about it differently, right? Because I was working primarily solely with lifers. So these were all guys who committed the worst of worst crimes. This was in Philadelphia, Greaterford prison. The, the, it was a group of guys who, if you've ever been to Philly, there's like, um, there's something like 3000 murals on the walls of buildings throughout the city of Philadelphia. And about a third of them are actually painted by lifers, which most of the community, which most people who visit Philly never know. Um, and so I was doing this interview project where I was interviewing them and the families of, of their victims. And, um, it was this really fascinating thing because when I went in, I was just like – I had the same mindset as I was like, what am I doing? I'm going to meet these like monsters and what is this going to be like? But it, I don't know. The story is always a little bit the same for me. Is like when you sit across from another human being and you actively believe they're trying and I get it. Maybe they're lying to me. Maybe they're playing a game with me. But there's definitely some people I sat with and I would talk to the – the corrections officers and the warden and they'd be like, yeah, he's, he's like a testament in this, this, like he's who we actually go to, to solve most of the problems we have in this jail. Right. And I'd be like, you know, he did a horrible thing. Does, is there, what is redemption for him? And, and when I hear him saying he wants to try or he just wants to connect with his kid outside who he's never gotten to know, it's hard for me as another human being to hear another individual human being say that and not go, I, I'd like to think there's a way that society can take you back in, not necessarily your victim. And that's the hard part we have to get in is like, I would never say that a victim would have to be like, yeah, I accept you too. And this is where it gets really hard on a society wise, societal wise. But, but I think that's what we, I think, especially in a period we are now with, I mean, just blatantly with, with a lot of the leadership we have that, that solely groups people as groups that solely goes like, there's people who do this, do this, and there's people who don't do this, and they're all part of a group. None of them are individualistic human beings. I feel like once you take away – what that ends up doing is it, it takes away humanity. And once you do that, I just think things get really fucked and people no longer respect each other and can no longer really – I worry that it, it, it makes people not be able to deal with each other. So what the book does is it takes Benton out of the group. He's just one of many people we probably could have shined a spotlight on. Through, throughout the, the miniseries. Um, but it's basically going like, let's look at this one guy's journey. He does some really horrible things in a world where a lot of horrible things are happening. Um, here's the things he does to try and write it. Does he actually earn redemption by the end of the book? I think is a, is a big question. 
Oof, man, you are giving me memories. Like we're talking about uh, fathers and, and, and strange acts committed by fathers. Speaking of prisons, uh, my dad once actually brought my sister and I, he had a friend that was a cop, and he brought us into a prison and actually put us in a cell and shot the bars on us and left us there for a half hour to teach us a lesson as to what it would be like if you ever landed yourself in a place like that. And let me tell you, there is... Yeah, oh no, I got stories. I got lots of stories. But there is a fire department about a mile and a half, two miles from my house now that looks exactly like that prison. I cannot drive past it without hearing the clattering of the bars as it actually shut into place and you hear that big bang reminding you that you're incarcerated and that you're in there. It was very scarring. I don't think, I don't know if he meant it to be that way, but uh, here we are. So, okay, let's move back to the, to the book. Enough about me and my, uh, my questionable past. <laughs> I'm also curious about the theology of Feral City. Gods are usually amorphous at best and not always so tangible or accessible. It seems obvious that the gods are more than just drug dealers. Do we eventually learn how and why they choose to slum it in Feral City? Also, if there are any questions that you're not comfortable asking, you can totally shut them down. I just want to put that out there. Sure. No, Kate and I were just talking about this. I, I, I think you learn a lot more about the mythology of them and Leth as we get into the second arc. A lot of the first arc is is really getting into the family, is getting into Mabel, uh, Benton, and Perry, and, and the crux of what happened. And then it's really when we get into the second the second four issues that how the gods came to be and how they operate each, with each other, like the mob gods do they work for left? How does, how did that happen? And like, why are they in feral city? Why are they hanging out on, on that plant, like in the earthly plane and left doesn't like, how do those things work? It's kind of a similar to how we did it in coyotes is you spent the first four issues, you know, really dealing with, with red and her sister and, and the beginning of the relationship with the Duchess. And then like the grander world of, of what the coyotes meant and all of the abuelas and the, the long time war of it kind of became more, present in the in the second arc i think for me i'm just really interested in getting deep into the humans first and then going like okay this is how it spreads out into the larger world i can't wait to see how that shakes out i'm excited uh bob why don't you uh take over for a bit sure i'm very intrigued by the world you guys are building here and i'm particularly interested in the concept of bliss the drug I'm probably all over the map on this, but might that substance be a metaphor for our current society's predilection for a disengagement with their own self-interests? In essence, allowing themselves to be carried away on ways of apathy for the past, which cause a lack of empathy for their fellow human beings. What do you think, Kate? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I think that's exactly spot on. I think that's that's a, a great analogy. Um, yeah, I mean... I don't, I don't even know how to improve on that. That was a really close Thank you, Kate. <laughs> you hit the bullseye, Bob. What do you think, Sean? Yeah, I feel like he looked at some of our notes. <laughs> <laughs> Bob's infiltrating your texts. <laughs> I get lucky now and again. The blind squirrel finds a nut every now and then. That's awesome. Uh, Melissa, are you there? <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm here. There she is! Yay! <laughs> uh, it's your time to get in on this. Why don't yeah. you uh, take it away? Uh, I'm not sure there's a whole lot left for me to talk about. You guys have gone so deep into all of this. Um, I'm like sitting here the whole time you're talking and think, looking at my like three questions and thinking, well, this doesn't, we already talked about these. Okay. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I, uh, Steve's right. I had a hard time writing questions in particular about the art because I was just, um, kind of fawning over it and fangirling about it because Caitlin knows that I love what she does. Um, in particular, I really, really enjoy the way that you create textures. Um, and I know you say that you look back at wolves and you're like, uh, whatever, you know. <laughs> uh, but this one, yeah, when I turned the page, the first page when the gods show up and I thought, man, everything is so gross looking and I love it. Like everything is slimy and... Um, in particular, I don't know which one he is, but this one, this one that sort of looks like a big frog and his teeth are amazing. <laughs> we've been watching a lot of, uh, we've been playing a, a game about sharks and the, and the teeth just remind me of all the different varieties of like sharks teeth. Uh, you've been playing man eater. Yes, we have. Yeah. <laughs> and there's just like all these crazy teeth you can give to the sharks. I'm like, these are incredible freaking teeth. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not sure how to turn this all into a question for you. I just think that your art has, like, progressed to some kind of epic level that I don't understand. Um, <laughs> oh, um, yeah, I'm I'm interested, you know, as someone who um, I'm a hairstylist, I don't work with paper like you do in different mediums, but still uh, an art form with my hands and I'm really interested in materials and I want to know like did you start playing around with any kind of new materials or techniques when you started working on this book that kind of changed the look of things because it does look like things have gotten deeper and more intense and more colorful hmm yeah I mean I think the most experimenting I've done has been with inking uh, because I've been doing a lot of uh, traditional inking well I've been doing a lot of what I've been doing is, is penciling digitally and then printing it out really light and then inking over that. Um, so I've been studying a lot of different artists that I love and just seeing how they've been getting textures. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't played around a little bit with uh, screen tone, but I was having trouble with screen tone because it's really expensive, first of all, uh, really hard to get a hold of, and then it, it doesn't really scan quite right. It kind of has this weird ribbing effect. But, um, but yeah, I've just been doing a lot of like trial and error stuff. I've been working in like kind of uh, ink washes, and even I started using, like, airbrushing, uh, you know, with inks. So mm -hmm. it's just been a, a lot of trial and error. And, um, like, I know, like, uh, Mateo Scalera does a lot of stuff with, with textures and ink and and, uh, and white ink, too, which is really cool. Yes. So, um, yeah, I've just been trying a lot of different things, and uh, it's been really fun. It's working. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, and you guys, um, I, uh, the setup of, of, you have to excuse me, guys, I haven't done an interview in a very long time, so I'm just, I'm like You're sitting here, yeah. I'm just yeah, listening, great. like, I'm just listening to a podcast, I'm not actually on this podcast. <laughs> I get that way with every guest that we have, I get I so just zoned out. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, but you guys talked about the dad theme already, and I know that, um, uh, Sean, you were talking a little bit on Twitter leading up to this about, you, you had thrown out some hints about, like, the family aspect and the parenting aspect that was about to come with this book. And 
I wasn't quite prepared for it, even though I knew that it was coming. I'm like, oh crap, you're writing something that's going to make this hard for me, and it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be emotional, and I got to prepare. Um, but yeah, just to be transparent, like I picked up this book and I didn't totally know what I was in for. Um, and I, my dad, um, had like some substance abuse issues when I was young. So my dad is definitely one of those people who has had like different lives, you know, and different people have had different impressions of him throughout his life and different stories about him. And so reading this, I was like, I think I was a little bit shaky. Like it was very, uh, very personal. And yeah, I'm, um, I don't know. It's awesome. And I don't know what else to say about this because you guys have gone so deep into it already. And, uh, I kind of, everything that I was thinking was already said, <laughs> um, but it's incredible. And I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm a little nervous about, um, what's to come because I think, um, as a parent myself, you know, you think about the things and the past of your parents a little differently when you become a parent, right? And you totally like skew your, your, uh, your view on their experiences a little bit once you're in it yourself. And so, I can't wait to see where this goes because I think I know this story a little bit. <laughs> no, it's interesting to hear because I think – I mean it means a lot to hear that because I think there's definitely been times where I'm like, oh, this is the worst marketing for, for, for the book is I'll post on Twitter like – this book terrifies me. I'm very scared tonight. I'm like, that's not a good tweet. What am I doing? But, but I mean, the things that you're talking about, like having a parent who wrestles with substance abuse, I mean, that's very much, I mean, my dad did too. So, you know, like that's, and it's just, it, yeah, it just brings it up. Writing about it, weirdly writing about it in this allegorical way has been very freeing, but I've been very surprised how kind of shaken I've been by it. Like usually the things I'm writing, like it's interesting, Anna's question about like the reception I honestly, most of the time, I don't care it, just because I've, I've, especially doing theater, I had so much experience with it. Like I used to do an, a, um, a, a, an exercise with my students who were worried about getting feedback and I would give them reviews of a play of mine that I had done. And one was like, great. One was like, yeah, it was okay. And one was like, he's an idiot. And I would just show them the three and I'd be like, those are all from the same night. Like that was the same performance of the same show on the same night. So like, I usually build that into myself, but I think, I think the personal nature of this has made me like, ah, oh, somebody doesn't like this. They mean they don't like my family or my soul. Oh God. Like, what is this going to mean? But so it's, it does, it means a lot hearing from the people who have read it who are like, Oh, I, I didn't expect to connect with, Th this book that has gods and stuff in it in the way that I am. Yeah, it definitely makes me think also, Sean, maybe we should put some kind of trigger warning or something because I feel <laughs> like we, it's, you know, a lot of people want to escape when they, when they read comics and maybe this is something that's, it's going to surprise people and how personal it can be. Right. Yeah. Been thinking about that. We can talk to Kat. Yeah. I don't know. I think with the uh, I think with what's going on in the world, people are and I say this as have somebody who's been in my profession. I've been talking to a lot of people very deeply about what's going through their heads um, in the middle of this. And I think a lot of people are actually feeling more introspective and like digging a little deeper because we've all had three months at home with our families and like no distractions and no schedules to keep, you know, and um, right. so I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I've always been into the deep stories anyway. <laughs> Yeah, those are the best ones. In my those opinion. are the best ones. Yeah, and those are the ones that I've always brought when when I do a show like this. But yeah, I think it's incredible, Sean, and I'm really oh, excited thanks. for this for this story because you know it's the, the art is incredible, but it also yeah, I, I my dad redeemed himself and like my dad 
pulled out of it. And, you know, I have, I, my dad, my dad passed actually in the beginning of March. Um, and so Sorry I started that. reading this and I was like, oh, <laughs> right. like, oh God. Yeah, well, it, in a good way, though, you know, it's just because that, that theme of like having somebody who's um, a very scary person at some point and then a very good person um, and changing, completely changing and redeeming. And so, like, I did not expect the connection to this story the way that it happened. Um, so thank you for that. Yeah, thank you for sharing it. <laughs> Ooh, this is the right podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so this one's for Caitlin. And talking about the gods, can you bring us through the evolution of their design process? Personally, I was reminded of Morla, the ancient one from the Neverending Story. Yes. As well as, yeah, right? And some of Jim Henson's gnarlier creatures, like the Skeksis from Dark Crystal. Did any nightmare creatures from your childhood play a part in your creative process? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Skeksis, Morla, the ancient one, are absolutely part of... I mean, especially Hera, that the turtle goddess. That was definitely... Definitely a more a Morla knockoff. I'm afraid of. I, like I, I think it's. I think she looks pretty unique, but I'm also like afraid that it's too close. But um, she's, yeah. It was it that the Neverending Story and the Dark Crystal and Labyrinth and even Legend. Like those are some of the most um, just visceral, uh, you know, character designs and and world building and everything. It's just it it really left a mark on me as a, as a kid. So. Um, yeah, those are definitely big influences for sure. And also like Guillermo del Toro, you know, anything that he did. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, whenever whenever that character was speaking, I totally heard Morla's voice. Go <laughs> away. So <laughs> nothing good. Nothing matters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nothing matters. All right. Uh, everyone knows that creating a comic requires a tremendous amount of dedication, energy, and communication. Given that we're in the midst of an ongoing pandemic, can you tell us if the temporary hiatus in the comics industry has affected the creative process or release schedule for Bliss? Well, it pushed us back a month, but I think otherwise, in some ways, maybe, <laughs> maybe it's bad to say this, but it might have been helpful. I think it, it allowed us to kind of take take more time. I know script-wise, it's allowed me to, like, not rush the second arc as quickly. I, I don't, I, I'm not sure if how it's affected Kate though. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been, yeah, it's been great that we can, that we could take our time with the plot a little bit more. Um, for me though, it, it's been a little harder to get the, to get going with the art because of just everything in the world happening. Um, it's, it's, it's not conducive. You know, people talk about like how if you're, if you're, home by yourself and you're not going out a lot and everything you should be more creative and more productive but i don't find that the case at all i find it um more difficult to keep motivated and to keep plugging along so it's been a challenge um but yeah i think i think it's ultimately was good because we got to really iron out how the story was going to unfold right on Okay, so Bob, when uh, he heads up our interviews, he does this thing that I absolutely love called the Fast Five. It's basically five questions for each of you that you have to answer as quickly as you can. Some of them require a little bit more thought, so you're going to have to be on your toes. Uh, I'm going to switch between the two of you. So Caitlin will get a question. Sean will get a question. Are you ready? Oh, God. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Caitlin, the first one is for you. I kind of alluded to this earlier, but here we go. What's your favorite Crayola color? 
Oh, God. Uh, turquoise. Nice! Ooh, Yay! Nice. All right, Sean, who would win in a fight, David Bowie or Prince? Oh, Prince. <laughs> yes. Yes. I agree. Caitlin, given the opportunity to create an album cover for any musical artist or band, who do you choose? Tom Waits. Oh, my God! <laughs> I wish Bronwyn was here right now. It's my wife's favorite uh, musical artist. That's amazing. I'm going to have to tell her you said that. <laughs> All right, Sean, uh, you're given the opportunity to write for any one TV show. Which do you choose? Oh, Jesus. I don't watch a lot of TV. Um, uh, Secession. I'm not familiar with Secession. I guess that's the end of that. <laughs> well, there you go. All right. Uh, I'll have to look it up. Caitlin, uh, if you could work only in one medium for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, crap. Um... Charcoal. Oh, a nice choice. I love charcoal. Sean, Hamilton or In the Heights? Oh, that's so tough. Uh, I love both of them a lot. You know, I I'd say Hamilton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, oh, do I only have four? Caitlin, damn it. All right. Uh, <laughs> I see uh, from your uh, – Caitlin, I see from your Twitter bio – that you like to sing. Who is your go-to artist to sing along to when you're alone in the car? Oh, uh, Amy Mann. Ooh, unexpected, but awesome. All the same. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to give you one more. So this is going to be a fast four, not a fast five. Uh, Sean, if you could be any Disney princess, which one would you be? <laughs> Man, I don't even know who the princesses are. Uh, it's Snow White one. Yes. <laughs> or, or it, yeah, I'll take Snow White. I think it's the only one I know. <laughs> she could talk to animals, man. That's pretty cool. I'll take that. That sounds cool. You could just go to your window on days that you're feeling blue and start singing, and they all come out, oh, and they land on your arms. <laughs> I, I would just like to know what my dog's thinking half the time, so that would work out well. Fantastic. Okay, so now that our interview session has come to an end, Sean, Caitlin, uh, would you like to tell our listeners how they can find you and follow your work online? Go ahead, Sean. Oh, sorry. Uh, I am only on Twitter. Um, so that's – or no, I'm also on Instagram. Clearly, I use these a lot. So uh, on Twitter, it's at Sean Chris Lewis. And on Instagram, it's Sean Lewis 6062. <laughs> okay and uh for me i'm on twitter and instagram uh instagram is just caitlin yarsky and uh twitter is yarsky with three r's fantastic very um, piratey yarsky can i jump in for a sec sean you're actually sean lewis 6026 ah shit thank you <laughs> thank you I, I <laughs> clearly yeah thank you <laughs> melissa's right that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> All right, don't forget, everybody, the first issue of Bliss comes out on July 22nd. So if you haven't gotten your pre-order in already, be sure to snag a copy so that you can see what we've all been talking about today. Uh, Sean, Caitlin, thank you so, so much for joining us. And we wish you nothing but the best as Bliss continues to hit the stands and beyond. Cheers. 
Thanks. Thank you so much for having us. I think also it's it's good to recognize too how important for indie books podcasts like this and the time that you guys are taking is it it really does for a book like what Kate and I are doing. It's massive. So thank you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Really appreciate it. Thank you guys. You are more than welcome. You are always welcome uh, on the podcast. We love hearing from you. We love seeing your work. And yeah, this has been a blast. So thank you so much. And uh, we will be back, I believe, with uh, the tail end of the show. Not much left, but uh, it's been a great time. Uh, Just stay tuned. We just want to say thank you once again to Sean and Caitlin for stopping by, taking some time out of their uh, pandemic-ridden schedule to talk with us about Bliss. Uh, Obviously, we were all major fans of the book, and we do hope that you enjoyed the interview and that you go and check it out on July 22nd at a comic book store or online retailer near you. Let's talk about the books that we're looking forward to next week. Bob, what are you picking up? Aquaman 61. I am going to try to slog my way through the Metal Men series by Dan Didio, which has gone off the rails kind of, but I pre-order them and you don't want to stiff anybody. We've got Fantastic Four 21, Captain Marvel 17, perhaps Spider-Woman number two. Not sure yet. I'll have to Mm -hmm. get a look at it. And there's one thing that has gone, speaking of off the rails... There's a new Betty Page series coming from Dynamite and writer Carla Pacheco, who did Fearless and is doing Spider-Woman. And due to some of what Dynamite is doing, she is going to finish her work with them and never work with Dynamite again. Oof. Yeah, Dynamite has gotten themselves into bed with some very bad folks on the Comicsgate side of things. Mm-hmm. Oh, I had not heard about that. Uh, yeah, they, they're participating in conference calls with some really sketchy folks. <sighs> and so Ms. Pacheco has said, well, I, I will. I have a contract. I'll finish my books, but no more. Comicsgate. So, yep. They, oh, rear the, get me started. they rear their head every now and again. Uh, it's, uh, you know, no, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I'm not no. going to do it. Maybe, maybe we'll do a bonus episode where all I do is <laughs> bitch about Comicsgate. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Aaron, what are you picking up? So I'm actually still doing my quarantine catch up and sort of dipping into other things, maybe outside of the norm of what I would usually read. Uh, so looking at a book called Excellence by Image Comics uh, by Brandon Thomas and uh, Emilio Lopez. It's basically uh, about a secret society of black magicians and a, a guy who's got to sort of live up to his father's uh, you know, imagery and, and, and expectations. So I'm checking that out. Um, Fantastic 421. Captain Marvel 17. I have a question mark next to Empire number one. Again, I, I, I liked War of the Realm, so I'm going to give them at least one to see, you know, where I fall. And then also Aquaman. All right. Uh, Melissa, are you picking up any books this Wednesday or are you uh, you're off the comic train? 
Uh, there's a couple that I saw out here that I will probably be looking up. Um, Gideon Falls number 23. I actually do still read Gideon Falls because I love that series. Mm-hmm. Um, that one's going to be coming out. I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out. There's a an amazing variant cover that um, keeps popping up every time I look it up, but I cannot find. I'm having a hard time finding um, something that says who did it. Um, <clears throat> let me see. Andrea Sorrentino is the first artist they list, and they list Dave Stewart as the second artist. So I wonder if he's the one who's doing the. I don't know. I hate to yeah. give anybody credit. I don't know who's doing it. I'm trying to figure <laughs> it out. I'm I'm literally on the image page right now, and it doesn't clearly say who's doing the variant. So. Yeah, that drives me nuts. Yeah. So, but there's a, an amazing variant cover of this issue, which I I like to sometimes try to find the variants because they're a little extra special. Um, so yeah, I should look that one up. Um, also I guess old guard force multiplied, which is supposed to be the wrap up of a story arc, the end of the story arc for that. Yeah. I think that's supposed to be issue five. I forgot about that. I wanted to mention that as well. Yeah. That's coming out, um, today on the 15th. Um, and then a quick game mention for you guys, uh, paper Mario, the Oregon. Yeah. Coming I, yep, out I two days, ordered. July 17th. Uh, that and Ghost of Tsushima both come out on the 17th. Looking forward to both. Yes. Yeah, edging ever so slightly away from the Animal Crossing as time marches on. <laughs> so, hey, 600 hours plus is is not a bad not a bad count for a video game. I have definitely gotten my uh, money and time's worth. So, uh, all right, as for me, uh, a lot of what everybody had mentioned, Aquaman number 61, Cap uh, 17, FF 21. I'm going to pick up the X-Men Giant Size Magneto number 1 DX. Uh, I'm saying the full title solely for Sarah's enjoyment if she ever <laughs> listens to this episode. She had uh, posted something on the internet that was very funny. Uh, and, yeah, Spider-Woman 2. I I feel... Like, it's been 17 years since I talked about Spider-Man, uh, Spider-Woman number one on this show. This was the one that would kind of had uh, some of the more horror aspects to it with her puking up this green stuff and uh, things not going right for Jess. And uh, it's another one that I'm going to have to go back and read that first issue again. I remember being intrigued and 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 kind of surprised by just how gnarly that first issue was so I'm definitely going to be checking that out and uh, even though I have not even finished the first issue yet uh, Ludocrats number three is coming out I believe that's a five or six issue run so uh, I'm definitely collecting that for a uh, for a binge read at some point and yeah so that's it for me in terms of books, um, I just want to correct myself earlier and say that the variant cover for Gideon Falls number twenty-three is by Andrea Sorrentino. There you go. I found the information. Awesome. Uh, does anybody have any closing statements before we get out of here? Yeah, just really quickly for anyone who's in the DC, uh, the DMV, the DC metropolitan area. Um, had a chat with one of my friends who owns uh, one of the comic shops here, and he was giving me some, you know, background on how they're dealing with things. So if you're in the area and you can stop by Big Planet Comics, there's several locations. You know, just help them out. Local comic shop. Show your pride. Thanks. Absolutely. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, Bob, anything for you? Nope. All right. 
Uh, Melissa, how about you? <laughs> That's it? Nothing? <laughs> Did you disappear? All right, she's not responding. I'm going to read oh, the stuff. My microphone was muted, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to you. <laughs> uh, no, I don't have anything. I'm good. Thanks, All right, well, guys. thank you. Thank you very much for being here with us this episode. This has been a blast. Thank you, you for having me back. You're very welcome. Uh, it was the first thing I thought of when Sean had reached out to me and, and said, hey, can we come on to the show? And I was like, well, got to got to dust off the old Melissa Megan and have her come back to the show. Wow, not dust her off. I'm feeling kind yeah. of dusty these days. <laughs> I have I have missed our chemistry, Melissa. It's been it's been an absolute joy having you here with us this week. All right, we have reached the end of this week's edition of the Talking Comics podcast. As always, you can send us your comments or questions through our email podcast at talkingcomicbooks.com. We are also on Twitter at Talking Comics is the handle We've got TalkingComicBooks.com, where you can find reviews and features from our fantastic contributors. Also, if you like this podcast, why not go and check out Talking Valiant, D&D Adventure? And of course, the ladies of Valhalla. Bob, where can our listeners find you? Old-fashioned email, Bob Ryer at TalkingComicBooks.com. Aaron? On Twitter at Aaron J. Amos, and Instagram at AJAMOS70. Uh, Melissa, where can our friends find you? And did you not tell me that new episodes of Sirens of Scream are possibly on the way? They are on the way. And um, when they do come, Sirens is going to be very different from the last time you heard it. Um, so, yeah, follow us now at Sirens Podcast. That's a little hint. Um, it's going to be a lot more than horror next time you see us. Ooh, um, mystery tease. Yeah, so you can also find me at Lissa Punch on Twitter and Instagram. Fantastic. Sarah is at Geek Country Lady. Jessica is at Jarska for all the things. And Bronwyn is at Shiny Baby B. I am at Dead underscore Anchorus on Twitter and Instagram. So for Bob... I'm starting to sound like Phil Rizzuto, but happy birthday to Kristen Gudsnuck, too. <laughs> ah! Aaron! Seriously, though, can I, I get some gnocchi? <laughs> For Melissa. I love you guys. We love Aww. you too. Uh, and for me, thank you all so much for listening. We hope that you enjoyed this week's show, our interview with Sean and Caitlin, wonderful people. Be excellent to each other. Be careful out there. Be patient. Stay educated. Stay alert. And we'll catch you next time on the Talking Comics Podcast. To be continued. Continued.